Marvel has always been, and will always be, a reflection of the world right outside our window. That world may change and evolve, but the one thing that will never change is the way we tell our stories of heroism. Those stories have room for everyone, regardless of their race, gender, or colour of their skin. The only things we don't have room for are hatred, intolerance, and bigotry. Stan Lee on the Marvel Universe in 1968. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel, a podcast where a movie fan and a comic book fan re-watch the Marvel movies and compare and contrast them to the original comic books that inspired them decades and decades before. I am Rob Holden, comedian, writer, and the certified comic book expert on this show at least. Uh, I've been reading Marvel comic books for over 30 years and my co-host and partner on this journey is comedian Mr. Will Preston. Hello! Now, Will, you know what time it is. <laughs> As we embark upon this episode, we've got to check in. It's been seven days since we last did this. Yep. I need to make sure the format, the integrity, Will, that's what rides on this, the integrity of this show. Yes. I'm the comic book fan, and you're the movie fan that's never read a comic book before. So please reveal to me, how many Marvel comic books have you read in the last week? Um, unless Viz counts as Marvel, none. <laughs> Yay, the format is intact. The integrity of the podcast remains thusly, which means we can proceed. Um, so long-time listeners of the podcast will know that what happens is Will Preston will... Uh, will take us through the rewatched movie of the episode and he will quiz me about all the things of the history and trivia from Marvel comic books that kind of informed the movie before us and I'll try and walk him through. Um, it's like taking a muggle out for a walk. It really is. You know, you just have to lead them by the hand, lead them by the nose as we <laughs> take it through the walk, through the uh, bizarre world of the 60s and 70s. A lot of 60s and 70s in this episode um, we've only got one rule here at Marvel versus Marvel. Oh yes, we both know what that rule is. We've had a lot of positive feedback about that rule, and in case you don't know, we'll wear it on our chest. We'll put it up front. It is no gatekeeping, isn't that right, Will? Of course, no. Worst part of, of of fandom, isn't it? Oh of yeah, geekdom uh, especially. Oh, absolutely. I see it in so so many places, not in just in geekdom, music as well. Music oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, I've been listening to them for ages. Well, pipe down. <laughs> Does it make you a better fan, a better person? And we, we've had some lovely letters about it, saying that they people are really responding to that. You know, th there's this idea that if you've just discovered the Marvel films, you're not a real fan. Well, that's absolute bobbins. That is nonsense. That is horse swill. Um, quite frankly, there are far more movie fans uh, of the Marvel Universe than there are comic book fans. We're outnumbered, guys, so we better welcome these uh, invading hordes with open arms. <laughs> we want to welcome everyone to this podcast, everyone to the Marvel family. So whether you've only just sort of started watching Marvel, or you last watched The Incredible Hulk in the 70s with Bill Bixby, or you've been reading comics for a long time, everyone's welcome here. Um, we're all fans, we're all reading about super-powered individuals doing weird and wacky things. So, yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. And we've had quite a journey so far, haven't we, Will? An incredible we've journey. 
uh, amazing journey, even. Ooh. Spectacular journey. Oh, wow. <laughs> Don't gatekeep these me are on all, words. These are all Spider-Man-associated words, you oh, see. That's what I'm trying to do here. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. I didn't realise spectacular um, was one. <laughs> spectacular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing and spectacular. We have put in the archive, for your listening pleasure, phase one of the MCU. We started with Iron Man, and we raced all the way through all those films, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man 2, Hulk, and the Avengers, to lock that phase up. And then, what have we done, Will? We've taken a little detour. Oh, a rather good detour. And where have we gone? We have gone before the MCU. I imagine it like this. Before the MCU! <laughs> you sound like that's the, the kind of Futurama if guy. If we had a budget, yeah, if we had a budget, man, we, <laughs> we'd have all kinds of effects and, and, and special stuff going on, but it's just you and me in the studio. Um, <laughs> yeah, so once we wrapped on the Avengers and Phase 1, we took ourselves on a detour on the journey, spinning off to 1998 to take a look at Blade... The first Marvel movie ever made. Oh, not yes. part of the MCU, not part of Marvel Studios. But that's what the point of the detour. Then we progressed in the last episode to the X-Men film that really changed a lot of the hearts and minds about what Marvel properties could do with a big budget. And then we are uh, kind of wrapping this detour up, for now at least, with a movie that, I mean, you talk about made money at the box office. In this episode, we will be covering the uh, 2002 entry of Spider-Man from director Sam Raimi. Yes. Something that we're both really excited about doing. Oh, incredibly. And you, you're talking about how much money it made. I mean, I checked up on it as well, and we all know the rule in Hollywood. A film has to make three times as much back for it to be considered a success. Yeah, we could say it's a successful film. <laughs> Have you got the number in front of you? Uh, not in front of me right now, do you? <clears throat> no, not in front of me right now. No. Okay. What a fail. We shouldn't have brought it up, really, should we? We should, we, we should put... Well, I, I was about to say we should put our money where our mouth is, but oh, here we go. Uh, budget was $139 million US dollars. Box office, $821.7 million US dollars. I think... Absolutely insane. Yeah. If a film's a success like that, uh, you're guaranteed a sequel, as far as I'm concerned. And I can remember at the time thinking... It was back when $100 million for a budget... Kids out there <laughs> who aren't decrepit with age, when you saw that a hundred million was being spent, it was like, God, this is a risk. Mm. This is a real risk. A hundred million dollars is not what it used to be, I guess. But back then, it was really they had they had this is better pay off. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll talk about the movie as we get going, but. Well, it'd be interesting to know, we, we, we want to know what, from your perspective as a non-comic book fan, reader, yeah, what you know about these characters before the major movie kind of puts them on the map. It's been interesting when we've come across things like Thor mm. and Iron Man that you kind of had really no knowledge of before. Blade, no knowledge of, which is understandable, really, minor character. Spider-Man, I, I imagine... I imagine, we've not talked about this off-air, I imagine it's been a, a different story because of just how popular and everywhere he had been. But what's the story, Morning Glory? What do you know about Spider-Man before this 2002 film? Uh, well, if this is the thing with Spider-Man. He is uh, he is a quintessential superhero, even, even when I was a, a small boy. It was like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. Those are your superheroes. Yeah. 
And we always knew about Spider-Man, and, 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 but I didn't know that much about him. All I knew was he dresses in red and blue and he has spider-like abilities and that's all I pretty much know. Well, knew at the time. I think uh, when I was a kid, I had a little uh, toy Spider-Man motorcycle. That was yeah. that, that. That was my only link. Um, if there's one thing I associate with Spider-Man, mm. it is of course motorcycles. Mm. I mean, he's a classic biker. <laughs> <laughs> he could be in the Hell's Angels, practically. He could. He could. Uh, but mm. Apart from apart from motorcycle nonsense, I mean, there was of course some video games that came out. Uh, I, th- I think uh, before the before this film came out, they bought out a uh, PlayStation One game of Spider Man from the same people who did uh, the Tony Hawk's games, and that got some success, and that sort of reinvigorated a lot of mainstream appeal to Spide of, of Spider Man. So I was like, oh, yeah. I think they had some weird characters in there, like Black Cat. Is that her name Black Cat? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. she was like a second, like like a help, helper character, and it was like, oh, okay, so there's a lot of characters involved in Spider Man. I don't know because I'm a Batman fan, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I, I I wonder whether you're see, I'm thirty seven, nearly thirty eight, mm. and when I was growing up, the Spider Man is Amazing Friends was a was a cartoon series that was on the TV that I watched, and then I was roughly the right age for the... Well, because I was a comic book fan, I was probably a bit too old, but I still enjoyed the the 90s cartoon series that came out. But you would have probably missed those 80s, and even probably the, maybe some of the repeats as well. Because I, I, I had repeats of the 60s series when I was youngster in the 80s. And of course, I know this the uh, 60s series from the glorious memes on the internet. <laughs> this might be the most memed film we've ever talked about so far. <laughs> Especially Crime Face Spidey. I mean, Crime Face Toby is in this. Uh, yeah, big it, moment for that. Cr- so, uh, obviously, we're going to have an influx of hundreds and hundreds of meme followers will be listening into this particular episode, anticipating our. 30 minute dissection of a meme which we'll definitely be doing later on um so you you didn't you didn't have the cartoon series when you when you were a kid uh the 90s cartoon was on but i was too busy watching keenan and kel <laughs> oh, I, was, I was i think strong paul yeah i i was watching cartoon network and nickelodeon and not i think it was on the other channel and i just never really fancied watching it it, it, it just it, which is surprising because now i look back i go oh why didn't i watch that i would have loved that all you're telling me is you had a rich upbringing with sky telly oh and no, us, wasn't us poor kids had to watch what was on proper telly no four channels and that's it it wasn't sky and then you come home with your clicker it, and you put on satellite channels it wasn't. It was nine x it was nine x cable tv <laughs> the poor man sky <laughs> so with that background then and that's kind of a really great perspective to yeah. have from the outside of the of the of the ingrained marvel fan what do you remember this film when it when it came out i mean did you remember the hype about it did you see it at the cinema what did you think in 2002 oh i absolutely remember the hype uh i didn't see it in the cinema funnily enough i'm really surprised at that because i i remember what when i saw it for the first time I, I I was taken back. I absolutely adored it because well, I think 2002. I was a fifth, dorky 15 year old kid watching a high school student who's just like me, dorky and outcast, suddenly gain powers and get the girl he loves. And it was just like <laughs> this. This is this is my movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's you know what, and that's amazing because that is one hundred percent the the key to that character. Yeah, the key to Spider Man. Um, well, that's really interesting, and and you would have uh, so you picked it up then, presumably on VHS, the best three letters in the world. I think it was uh, VHS. DVD. Uh, sorry. Don't you tell me that. I, I, th- oh. I think I'm dropping my middle class oh, card again. <laughs> I didn't see a DVD until I were a grown man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, before we uh, press play on the movie, Will, and before you barrage me with your incessant questions oh, about yes. the movie, um, it, it's, it's important to take a little bit look at how Spider-Man came to be, um, how he was created and how he was birthed into the world and became this enduring figure that would lead us to the 2002 movie that lays before us today. We go back to 1962. Um, Marvel is having real success with its brand new formula of superheroes, the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk, the first comics of that Marvel age. And... This is the time that, that people in power are noticing a huge surge in the buying power of teenagers. I mean, teenagers have become a growing cultural... They, they've sort of become their own cultural group after since the Second World War ended. Mm-hmm. And it's taken a little while to get going. But by the time you get to the early 60s, there, there is a, a vibrant kind of culture of young people. Not children anymore not adults yet and a very tempestuous kind of period of of their lives and they are through them we are beginning to see the emergence in western society at least of counterculture for the first time culture entertainment art that is not dependent on on established norms that generally come from older people and generations and that's who's really vibing with these new comics that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby have created, teenagers. So Stan Lee, being the Shakespeare of the 60s, uh, decides to take it upon himself that the next character he's going to write and create is going to be a teenage superhero. <laughs> this was a completely new idea. Completely new. And uh, children had been sidekicks in the older comic books. Batman and Robin, he's the sidekick. Captain America and Bucky, but they always had adult supervision. They were there for the adult to explain the plot to, mm. speak down to a little bit. They were there to always get kidnapped by the villain and held hostage so the adult could come in and save them. They weren't heroes in their own right. Stanley in the 60s, whether he fully knew it or not, with Spider-Man, with this character, decided to give teenagers what they desperately craved in this period of time independence and agency that had not happened ever before in comic books and you'll struggle to find too many examples at this time you know in the literary world stan says uh, subsequently that the idea he got kind of the insect idea for spider-man from an old pulp fiction character called the spider who is a bit like the shadow you know uh, pulp yeah. novels of a detective with a gun and a kind of a bit of a quirk maybe a little power but not really you know they were kind of early forerunners of superheroes the shadow and those kind of characters they didn't appear in 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 full color in a comic book but you could get these pulp novels very cheaply produced pulp novels a lot like the the westerns and the romance ones at the time as well yeah so stan says he got the insect idea from the spider character and from watching an insect you know a spider on a wall this is 
hotly disputed by Jack Kirby, <laughs> his long-time writing and collaborating partner, artistic partner. Kirby claims that Spider-Man is ripped off from a concept that he and Joe Simon came up with. Uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby created Captain America in the 40s, and they, they're veterans at the time that Stanley is creating the Marvel Universe. Kirby says that the Spider-Man character is ripped off from a character they created about a little boy who finds a magic ring and it gives him insect powers. <laughs> now, I don't know. That character was already being published by Archie Comics, the people that make Sabrina the Teenage Witch and, of course, Archie as well. And that, that character was called The Fly. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think Kirby. Kirby is kind of really claiming that he created Spider Man, and I think what they're really saying is that that's where the insect perspective, the insect idea, came from. For me, there might be a dispute over where that idea came from, but the Spider Man character is wholly different and original. It's very, you know, it's completely different. Oh, too right, too right. So Stanley puts this idea together, and and and. The Marvel publisher at the time, Martin Goodman, does not see any potential in this character at all. You know, a, a, a superhero that's an ordinary teenager was very radical. He didn't like that. The hero being insect-based, he thought was going to be very disgusting and off-putting. Because he just went, well, the insects are disgusting. We don't want anything to do with them. So he, he only agrees to publish the Spider-Man character if it happens in the very last issue of a comic book that he's already cancelled. What? So, a sci-fi anthology comic called Amazing Fantasy mm. has already been cancelled. It's only got one more issue left. So he says to Stan, if you want to do this character so bad, put him in the last issue of this. And he's thinking, I'll never have to hear about this again. Yeah, You'll fill the last issue. Because Amazing Fantasy is an anthology, so it doesn't have recurring characters. You have one story, and that's the end, and it never happens again. So that's the deal that Stanley has given. You can create the character once. So Stan has Jack Kirby take a stab at designing Spider-Man. But Stan has said in subsequent interviews that he really hated the artwork that Kirby came back with. Kirby was drawing a powerful, heroic figure. And Stanley says he knew this was all wrong for the character. So he turned to... and he, Can you imagine now, Will, <laughs> a heroic... Tall, muscled Spider-Man character. You know, if it looked like Superman or something. Only in my dreams. It's completely. It's completely. You know, it would. There's no way it would have worked. No, so no. Stanley's turns to an artist called Steve Ditko, who has worked on scores of sci-fi comics for Atlas Comics, which is what Marvel were kind of called in the 1950s. Ditko has this unmistakably weird feeling to his artwork. He is not known for drawing drawing tall, muscled figures or handsome characters with square jaws and you know matinee good looks. He he he's, his drawings are of the average Joe, and that's exactly what this idea really called for. Kind of a skinny, jaundy, like weird looking character, almost not quite a spider looking thing, but you know you don't want a muscled dude. So Ditko creates that really striking character um, costume for Spider-Man, uh, which is not like any other costume that had ever been seen in in, um, in superhero comics to that point and probably wouldn't be repeated for a long time. Amazing Fantasy 15 hits the newsstands and the character was meant to disappear after that. 
That comic is cancelled already. <laughs> but when Martin Goodman reviews the sales figures a few months later, he sees that putting Spider-Man on the front cover of Amazing Fantasy turned a failing comic book series into one of their highest selling titles. <laughs> so he immediately knows, whoa, okay, I was wrong, Stan was right, we've got to do something here. So uh, an ongoing Spider-Man comic book is ordered with Stanley and Steve Ditko at the helm. And Spidey very quickly becomes a cultural icon in America. It's published in 1963, the first of the regular series, mm. 1963. And by 1965, Esquire magazine conduct a nationwide survey of college campuses all over America. And they find in that survey that the college students rank Spider-Man alongside Bob Dylan and Che Guevara as top revolutionary figures in culture. Wow. After two years. Um, one of the students in the survey uh, wrote... They, they all wrote their feelings. And one of the students says that Spider-Man, he is beset by woes, money problems, and the question of his existence. In short, he is one of us. Yeah. And goddamn, if that doesn't nail the character uh, and nail why that character connects with so many people across so many generations. Um, and off the back of that, Spider-Man has endured for f- over 50 years and has sold uh, over 385 million copies across the world. So that's how the character came to be. And that's what the whirlwind was set off by... Stanley, Steve Ditko, and sort of Martin Goodman. <laughs> Once he uh, starting to realise at that stage that you know what, when Stanley puts pen to paper, I need to kind of go with his gut feeling on this. I need to, uh, I need to listen to what this guy creates. You know, that was a time when Stanley still needed to go to Martin Goodman to get permission to, to you know create things and characters and write books, and that wouldn't last forever because after a while, the people at Marvel go, maybe Stan knows what he's doing. Um, and speaking of people <laughs> who know what they're doing, Will. Yes. Um, we've uh, we've been blown away. Like every week, we're seeing more and more downloads, more and more listeners, subscribers. Um, it's fantastic, and and we're seeing people get in touch with us from all over the world. We know we've got a huge fan base. A huge part of our audience comes from America. That's fantastic. Of course, our, our home country, the United Kingdom. Uh, is uh, repping big and and lots of other places across Europe and and it's it's fantastic and if you do want to get in touch with us we do want to hear from you we've been saying it in a lot of episodes that we want to hear what your experiences are of Marvel comics if you've always been a comic book fan like me are you uh, a movie fan like Will like how did you come come to discover these characters you can drop us a line Marvel versus Marvel at gmail dot com and I can see Will you've got a uh, a Busting sack full of letters there on your lap. Oh, as who's u- been in touch this week? Oh, as usual. Well, we asked around our fans. We asked them uh, what your what your early memories of Marvel, uh, and specifically Spider Man, but other things as well. We've had quite a few. Uh, Paul Savage says uh, his memory uh, about about his uh, early memory of Marvel. He says mine was a bit on. I want to say an intermission on a Scooby Doo episode where Hulk Cap and Thor are fighting a group very similar to them, and Thor is trying to convince Hulk that the female USSR type he's fighting is flirting with him. Do you remember this? 
This is this is really odd. Yeah. So I can I, I can picture the art style. So I think what he must what Paul Paul Savage friend of the show Paul Savage. Yeah. What he must be talking about is the old um, Scooby Doo Mysteries series, which I think is the sixties. Yeah. And I think around that time, Marvel was doing a lot of cartoons. Um, that's when they're doing a Captain America cartoon. I think a Hulk cartoon, and definitely a Spider Man one. So, uh, interestingly enough. In that series, there's a Christopher Lee type character doing spooky. He does the introduction to every episode and and sends the Scooby, the Mystery Gang, whatever they're called, the Mystery Machine, mm. sends them off to solve these kind of mysteries. And this character looks exactly like Doctor Strange. Weird. And growing up as a kid for years, it bugged the head out of me because I was like. Is that meant to be Doctor Strange? Because it looks just like Doctor Strange. And it turns out it was originally... I've looked into it years later, thanks to Wikipedia and stuff. It was originally going to be Doctor Strange. Um, and then it kind of just became a Christopher Lee type. Yeah. And I'm not entirely... I, I must look up. I have a feeling Christopher Lee actually did the voice for the character. But I'll, I'll have to double check that. Would surprise me. He's thanks of, for that. He was one of the hardest working uh, people in Hollywood. Also, I think they did a similar thing as Scooby-Doo where they had Vincent Price in later stuff. Sorry, when I say Christopher Lee, I do mean Vincent Price. You that's, do mean that's Vincent Price. I mean. There we go. Yeah, sorry, that's sorry, right. sorry. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that, I do that all the time. I'll blame it on dyslexia. Part of it might be a brain tumour. You never know. Ah. We'll see what the results come back with. Uh, <laughs> also, we've got Mike Milling, who says, early cartoon stuff like Spider-Man and Amazing Friends, Incredible Hulk, and those really early ones we get from the video shop. The old school cutout Thor and Cap ones mainly. Also, that Spider-Man, or was it the Avengers arcade game, had a big impact on me. One with Spider-Man, Hawkeye, Namor, and Black Cat. That was wicked. Do you remember this arcade game? Because I don't. Yes, I believe this was Captain America and the Avengers. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, it was. So it does. It, it. I don't know if it has Spider-Man in it though, bro. I. I don't know. I can't think of a game that has Spider-Man and Hawkeye in it. But definitely there was an arcade game that has Captain America, Hawkeye, uh, Iron Man, Vision. It's called Captain America and the Avengers. Um, it was. Uh, Definitely available to play at the uh, local swimming baths and gymnasium in my hometown. <laughs> it was a main part of why I was there. There was a whole bunch of other little characters on there, and it did come out on some of. I think you know, it then came out. I think on the NES and the and the Mega Drive and stuff, or the Genesis for our American listeners. Ah, the Genesis. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I I don't think Spider Man's in that one, but. It's a great, great memory because it's one of my, it's one of the early. I think it's the first uh, Marvel video game I ever played. Any superhero video game I ever played, and I, I can, I can't. It's really hard to explain the landscape because right now Marvel dominates Hollywood and oh. it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But as a kid, no, I did not have a single friend that read superhero comics. None of my friends read growing up. American superhero comics. Same, same. They were not. They just were not as popular as like the to me deeply boring Beano, Dandy, Buster. The really dull British comics about a slightly naughty little boy at school. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jesus, how can you read this stuff? Uh, so to to walk to walk into a public place and see these characters that I don't get to talk to anyone else about because no one knows about or like no one cares. Walking into a public place and seeing those characters on a, on, a, on an arcade machine was 
absolutely huge to me as a kid. Yeah. Oh man, I I remember I remember the early nineties when I did start bringing out like uh, Marvel superheroes and Batman and more stuff onto uh, onto into the video game scene, and that was pretty much my first exposure to a lot of it. Yeah, but ba- ba- I mean, Batman the movie opens a lot of doors in that respect um, because it's such a box office hit in the late eighties that you know it leads to the animated series and tie-in toys mm. and things like people. People who are making money start to realise we can make money from from superheroes. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Batman did open the Batman animated series did open the door for the X Men specifically, but we talked about that last time. Anyway, I've got another one here. Uh, Matt Ricardo talking about his early memory of Marvel, reading Luke Cage in the late seventies at my grandma's house. You had to go to the shop with the scary couple who were always arguing to get American comics. It was worth it. When I finally got to New York in real life, I recognised part of it from Power Man and Spider-Man comics from my childhood. Was that shop uh, with a couple arguing? That, that sounds like the one from Father Ted. That's exactly where I was going. It felt like Matt Ricardo grew up on, uh, on that island. Um, Craggy Island. That's it. Uh, the Craggy Island, there you go. That's a great that's a great memory. Um I'm a huge fan of um Luke Cage, Power Man. Uh was really pleased by his resurgence in recent years. And I, that's something I would love to do. I never visited New York. I'd love to be able to uh, pop around and just kind of look for those Marvel places, you know, those those scenes that I know I mean I, I, I recognise landmarks in Marvel comics before I ever like when I when I started to watch you know American movies, I'd be like, oh, I know that bridge from Spider Man, <laughs> and uh, I know I know where that is. That's that's where Spider Man kind of lives. I will so, say, uh, d- yeah, definitely go to New York. I I went there uh, a few years back, and and I was just in awe, like recognizing everything. But one thing ruined it for me. Uh, that was be- the the fact that the Ghostbusters fire station had scaffolding outside. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I know. Trying to preserve a landmark? How dare they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, could they at least do it after I've taken a selfie next to it? Damn. <laughs> to be fair, scaffolding companies should check with you, shouldn't they, before you, you know, Will, we're about to put something up. Are you thinking of coming here? Like, are you going to visit Venice? Because we've really got some work to do. Well, I, Just... I, I need to get 20 likes on an Instagram post, so hold on. Hold on to your socks, boys. <laughs> Take it all down. Move it slightly to the left. <laughs> It's it's so awesome to get all your feedback, guys. Please keep getting in touch. Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com. And it's awesome to see this audience we have grow every week. Um I mean thank you for, for, for downloading and listening. Thank you for joining us on this on this detour. You can support us. This podcast takes it don't take it's not it's not it's not a slow process, is it, man? It's not a quick process. <laughs> no, no. This podcast takes hours. And hours of work, there's a, there's a whole bunch of costs uh, involved in it. So if you want to help make sure that we stay on the air and, and keep delivering this kind of entertainment, then you can head over to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel, patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash marvel versus marvel, and that's the full word versus, not just the V-S. And you can throw some money our way, you can tip your boys. Yes. Not only are you going to be helping to keep this podcast afloat, but it also entitles you to access some awesome bonus episodes as well. 
our Patreon page as weekly blogs full of uh, extra trivia, history and images. Those blogs are free for everyone to check out, read, enjoy. We expand on some things from the episode. We have images of all the different moments that we talk about. So if you want to see, you know, what what the hate monger looks like from the Captain America episode, that's on there. What Armin Zola looks like, that's up there. Um, and those are for everyone. But if as well as if you pledge, become a patron, donate to the show, you'll get access to bonus episodes. We just put a, uh, a special one up this week, didn't we, Will? Oh, yes. All about the worst mutant powers in Marvel history. Some of the most useless members of the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That was a fun little uh, journey to take Will <laughs> through some of the most ridiculous powers rocking and rolling along. Oh, yes. Um, Dazzler fans gone be mad at me because they are out there. Um, yeah, so, so please take the time to do that. Gary Wardle just joined us on Patreon. Thank you for the pledge, Gary. And he writes in to say, I'm stuck in lockdown. The world is burning outside. Everything is terrible right now, but at least I've got this podcast. Oh, Thank you, brother. I've just binged my way through all of phase one, learning so many awesome things about Marvel. Thank you for over eight hours of MCU distraction from the real world. I'm going to keep pledging so you can keep distracting me. That's what we're here for, right, Will? Distraction. Yep. It's an honourable service. Entertainment. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, throw some cheddar. Come on. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the movie before us today on the docket. It's Spider-Man. It's 2002. It's Sam Raimi. It is this character's first time on the big screen. Will... Take us through that film. Okay, so Peter Parker is a nerdy high school senior in New York City. His parents are dead and he lives with his uncle Ben and Aunt May. He has a crush on his next door neighbour, Mary Jane Watson, who is also one of the few classmates who is nice to him. Her boyfriend, Flash, and his buddies pick on him. Peter's only friend is Harry Osborne, who... Through rich and though rich and good-looking, is similarly an outcast. Harry, however, is somewhat jealous of the affection his father Norman shows Peter. Norman, the head of weapons contractor Oscorp, appreciates Peter's scientific aptitude and can barely conceal his desire that Peter was his own son. Well, I got worried then. When you said barely concealed his desire, I was a little bit concerned about what kind of movie I've, uh, we're watching here. I know. That's for the fan, uh, the fan fictions that we won't be reading out. I have to say, uh, it's, it, I, I, I mean, I, I can gush all I want. I'll gush all I want, but not here, uh, about how good it is to rewatch this film because <laughs> it's, it's nostalgia for me. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, even though it's 2002, the opening titles and music, because they've got Danny Elfman to do the music as well, it feels like yeah. a 90s superhero film. It feels like, you know, when Batman came out and then they're like, they were trying to get superhero sort of feel to a lot of things. And it's like, oh my God, Sam Raimi and Danny Elfman, what a combo of soundtrack and director. And of course, it is not Sam Raimi's first superhero film, as you might know. Of course not. Of course not. Tell hitters with it. Hitters, tell them. If you don't know, get to know. Will? Darkman. 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 Uh, fantastic little uh, superhero film with. No, it didn't, totally original, wasn't it? It wasn't based on a comic? 
No, he, he tried very hard to get a couple of different film rights to a couple of... He, he was tr- Basically, and you might be able to tell this from the way... Yeah. Um, Raimi tried to get the rights to The Shadow. Uh, but the rights to The Shadow yeah. were already tied up with the Alec Baldwin movie. So he decided it would be a lot easier to and cheaper to create his own um, his own kind of dark, heroic figure. Yeah, I don't know about superhero film. I mean, it, it isn't that... It, he's, you know, he's in, in that vein, but... It's much more in the pulp hero vein. It's much more the spider and the shadow and that kind of you know the phantom. Yeah, it it, it does. But I I I see it as a superhero film because the whole gangsters thing and the whole uh, he's got a a weird super a weird power a weird ability. It's a bit supernatural. Yeah, but would you call the crow a superhero movie? Oh god, you wouldn't, would you? Well, oh, I really. I mean, it's from a comic book, but it's not a superhero, is it? What's his power? What's this crow's power? He came back from the dead. <laughs> goth. His power is goth. His power, his power is awesome soundtrack. <laughs> okay, you got me there. You got me there. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, also, Norman Osborn. He is so nice. He is so nice at the beginning of this film. <laughs> I was like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like, you know he's going to be the bad guy when it's, uh, when it's Willem Dafoe playing him. The, 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 I think the problem... Not the problem, but the, what what hits me so hard yeah. is that Peter, in all the forms, is a character crying out for his for his dad, mm. and you know he, he he gets a semblance of that with this. You know he gets he gets teased with it with this character. Yeah, um, yeah. Whether it's in the comic books or in the movies, and it's kind of horrible that it just never happens for him. It's it's uh, yeah. You, you, you can really tell that, and plus one thing, because when I watched, uh, what was it? Which one was uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming? Was the yeah. was the was the first MCU one? And I always saw this film. Uh, Tony, uh, sorry, what's his name? Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire, I always thought was a bit like ooh, sort of very droopy, very very wet face, very ooh, sort of, uh, and not very fun. And I always thought that um, who's, who plays Spider Man in the new one, the young, young Tom Holland. I don't, are you prepared for this episode? <laughs> I am. Pre- I am prepared. I thought Tom Holland was when I first saw Tom Holland doing it. I was like, yes, that's how Spider Man should be. Amazed to be to have spider powers. But going back and watching Tobey Maguire, he's actually quite lovably dorky. He's actually quite an endearing. I I think he's fantastic. Yeah. I, I really think he's very very strong in the role. I don't think any of them are perfect because mm. it's very hard. Again, as we said, some of these this character's been around for fifty years. Yeah, it's very hard to encapsulate all of all of it. Um, and and I think Spider Man Peter Parker is a very difficult one to pull off. I think it's infinitely harder to do this than it is to do Clark Kent Superman or Bruce Wayne Batman. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think Toby's Toby's yeah, he's a little too old for the role, but. So is everyone, <laughs> you know. Everyone playing a teenager uh, in in any movie or TV show is is far too old. So you just got to crack on with it. Yeah, I, I did. I did. I did spot that a few of them. Uh, but yeah, he's he's lovely, dorky. But Rob, uh, a lot of the uh, supporting cast in this we have seen before. I mean, is this Peter's background in the comic books? Living with Aunt May and Uncle Ben, getting picked on by Flash, and Harry as his best friend, and MJ living next door. Is that? That is that all intact in the comic? Uh, strong supporting cast is crucial to Spider-Man stories. Yeah, there are errors when they get rid of the supporting cast, and those are terrible errors of storytelling. 
because Peter's hectic life is the best part of of being Spider Man. Juggling, it, you we we know how difficult it is to juggle our friends and family with a job. Yeah, and having some semblance of your own life. It's all those commitments are hard. You tack onto that the idea that you've got to run out the door every two seconds to go and save someone, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's deeply relatable. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Yes, the rest of the gang. Not so much. Flash Thompson uh, is Peter's high school bully in the original 60s comics. Um, and although he doesn't really do much in any of the movies, really, he stays a part of Pete's life uh, and they eventually become friends. The fun oh, wow. dynamic of early Flash, which is something we see in the MCU version, is that Flash hates Peter Parker but thinks Spider-Man is really awesome. Yeah. That's the fun little dynamic going on there. It's almost a little bit like the Lois Lane Superman thing. She's not, a, you know, she's not attracted to Clark Kent. She's in love with Superman. <laughs> it's kind of like that dynamic, but with a bully. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, in, in the sixties, yeah. Peter Parker has no friends, and I mean no friends at school. He does not have any. He gets bullied. He tries to date a couple of girls, but it doesn't really work for him. And he just does not. He does not have. Harry Osborn's not there. MJ's not there. He doesn't have any friends. Um, MJ doesn't live next door and doesn't go to his school and stuff. Peter meets MJ and Harry. He doesn't meet them until he goes off to college Mm. in the mid-60s and kind of winds up then being roommates with Harry. But to begin with, no one at college likes Peter either, especially especially Harry. Um, So no, he has an even lonelier childhood than what, what we see in this movie. Although I would like to point out the utterly bizarre idea that handsome, good-looking, rich boy Harry Osborne is somehow would somehow be an outcast as well. (laughs) That makes absolutely it's bafflingly weird. Uh, But there you go. I mean, especially when you play get James Franco to play him, and you're like James Franco. He's so smooth and suave and cool. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but makes no sense whatsoever. So anyway, also, 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 Flash. What kind of name is that? What kind of name is Flash? <laughs> like that is stupid. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. It is especially because you know there's already a Flash in the comic book world, and he can run really fast. Uh, it's a little. His real name is Eugene. Eugene. Yeah. Eugene Thompson. Yeah. So. Oh, you know, yeah. Flash. I imagine it's because he's really quick on the football field or something. I imagine, you know, America. Let's hope it's, he's just field. quick. He's quick just on the football field and nowhere else. Also, yeah, <laughs> flashing. Did he get sued? Yeah, you get sued. I was about to say, yeah, he was. His, his hair in this film was so of its time. You know, that spiky, spiky hair. Every <laughs> everybody had. I'm amazed he didn't have uh, frosted tips. As well. Oh no! <laughs> or a shirt with flames on. Because <laughs> that is that is peak 2002, isn't it? Yes. Oh, it was... Spiky hair, frosted tips. Oof. It, it, it made me, it really made me nostalgic seeing all this. But yeah, anyway, in the movie, Peter's science class takes a field trip to a genetics laboratory at Columbia University. The lab works on spiders and has even managed to create new species of spiders through genetic manipulation and combination. While Peter is taking photographs of Mary Jane for the school newspaper, one of these spiders... Creep. What? <laughs> Creep. <laughs> 
Hey, it's perfectly Can't, can't right. get away with that, mate. No. This is well before hashtag me too. It's fine. It's fine. He's not telling her to remove anything. <laughs> it was perfectly above board. I, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me in the ass. Anyway, yeah, anyways, taking uh, photos of Mary J for the school newspaper. One of these new spiders lands on his hand and bites him. Peter comes home feeling ill and immediately goes to bed. At the genetic level, however, the venom injected by the spider bite begins to work strange magic on Peter. <laughs> okay. Do that again for me, please. Sorry. Do that again for me, please. Strange. Do strange magic again for me, please. Strange magic. <laughs> so I, I, I thought I'd give it a, a Rick Mail lilt, but uh, this is a. <laughs> I have a major problem here. How did oh that god! Here we go. How is this going? Where I think it's going to go, Will? Is this going to Nerd Town? No. Are, so we, are we aboard the? Are we aboard the train to actually uh, genetic manipulation would not occur? What's happening? Where are you taking us? Actually, if it was anything to do with genetic manipulation or biology, here we go. I'd have to. I'd have to bring my fiance in, and she could. Oh, okay. that, but no, no, no. Oh, that'd be that's an interesting dynamic. Can we get a genetic perspective on these superheroes? That'd be great. Oh, that'd be. I, I'll, I'll give it. A, I'll give it a think over. But my 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 bugbear comes from something a bit more basic. How did that spider escape? <laughs> also, yeah, it's never explained, is it? Also, how did he not bite anyone else after running away and give them powers as well? Because like, oh, and it's not the spider. Well, it's that's interesting. Against- you should say that. Yes. Oh, why is this? How Peter gets his powers in the comics as well. Sort of, sort of, but not really. Sort of, but not really, which is, of course, my my quote on this show. Yeah, I was about to say, that's your catchphrase. I should have a buzzer for that. (laughs) Catchphrase. Sort of, but not really. So it it is a school trip uh, to a science exhibit with woefully bad health and safety guidelines. Um, But in the comics in the 60s, they're not experimenting on spiders. Mm. Uh, They're doing super dangerous radiation experiments. (laughs) It, it, they go to attend an experiment on radiation, and there's like a big machine, and it's like, look at this, kids. That could bear in mind again, again. We cannot stress this enough. Stanley knows bugger all about science, <laughs> and he's writing science fiction. You just have to. So none of it makes sense. Hmm. So they go see a science exhibit, and it's look at this, children. That is a machine creating radiation. <laughs> there's not. There's no. There's no protective gear. There's nothing. It's just it's just crackling with crackling with radiation, and and while that goes on, an ordinary normal house spider, mm. accidentally coming down from the ceiling, gets irradiated. It's not meant to be there. Yeah. And then the irradiated spider bites Peter Parker, right before dying. So that's why it dies. It dies because it's had a dangerous bout of radiation. Yeah. It doesn't make sense in this movie because that's just a normal spider. That's just a brand new spider they created. Why does it die? But interestingly, to your point, you know, going off and biting someone else, uh, um, a new Marvel uh, character was created not that long ago called Silk, who was like a female Spider Man. Ah, uh, but not but not Spider Woman because there's already about sixteen of them, uh, <laughs> and her origin is that she was that she's the same age as Spider as Peter Parker. Mm. And she was with a different school class, getting a different um, trip, uh, school trip through the same science exhibit. And after the spider bit Peter, it went and bit her, and then died. How many school so exhibits? Got, 
do they show around dangerous radiation at a given day? <laughs> Come on, we gotta radiate yeah. the entire third grade. <laughs> we need some we need we need to get some superpowered soldiers for the next war. That's just going to radiate a whole bunch of kids. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of but as we said previously. The creation of a lot of these characters is all from what was kind of causing a stir in the in the papers at the time, causing a lot of fears. Radiation was a big one. We talked mm. about that with the X Men episode. That was all from fallout from nuclear testing. Well, this is kind of like from other radiation um, that, that is going on. No one really knows what radiation is. Again, Stanley reads something in a paper, turns it into a comic. <laughs> that does sound like him. It does. I yeah. mean, if you've seen the Simpsons episode where he pops up on, he he appears quite mad in that. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. We've got more on Mad Stan Lee later on. <laughs> stay stay tuned. Stay tuned for a whole section on insane Stan Lee. Insane. Uh, it's Stan. a lot of a lot of fun. Oh, I love it. Anyway, pressing play again. Meanwhile, General Slocum visits Oscorp to see the results of their new super soldier formula. When one of the when one of Norman's top scientists, Doctor Strom, warns him the formula is unstable, General Slocum threatens to pull all of the military's funding from Oscorp. Later that night, Norman exposes himself to the formula. He gains superhuman strength and agility, but is driven insane. He kills Strom <laughs> and steals two other Oscorp inventions: an exoskeleton and jet glider. Now, can I have driven insane again, please? <laughs> driven insane. <laughs> I'm trying to read a story, mate. That's, funny, that's, the good, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. I'll get a. Uh, I'll get an Emmy. Anyway, uh, whatever the podcast equivalent of that is. Uh, so, the, the exoskeleton and the jet glider. What the hell is that guy wearing when they test it? He looks like he's at a rave. Isn't he wearing the exoskeleton? He's wearing the exoskeleton, but if you watch it again, he's got these weird, like, remember those uh, sunglasses? I think they tried them in the early noughties, where they're like that, and they went above. Instead of going to the side, they went up. Yeah, He has a pair of those on. Well, they're they're obviously to be aerodynamic and protect your eyes from bugs and wind and stuff when you're going really fast without a helmet. I know, but I just look at that and go, why not just wear a helmet? You look like a dick. <laughs> why not just build a helmet that looks like a goblin's face? I mean, that's the that's the obvious thing that I would do if I was working for the military. <laughs> what, as a kind of uh, as a psychological uh, military? Bear, bear with me, gentlemen, but what if we, uh, what if we made all our soldiers, and hear me out here, look like goblins for some reason? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's how you win military contacts in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I, I mean, if it came at me, I would be going, what? I, I wouldn't be going, oh, the enemy are attacking. I'd be like, what? <laughs> so, obviously, we're meeting two minor characters here. So, But what do we know about General Slocum and Dr. Strom? General Slocum is created for the movie. Okay, He's not a Marvel character. There's not much of a military connection in Spider-Man. Um, Flash Thompson joins the mar- the army, and that's about it, really. So there's not an existing character for them to use. Mm. That being said, General Slocum is a type of steamboat <laughs> in the olden days. <laughs> uh, you know, you you would catch you would catch a General Slocum. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know if that's 
where they got the name from, but if you, you you more than welcome to Google General Slocum. It's a side wheel side wheel passenger steamboat uh, built in Brooklyn. Oh, and, it is. Uh, there was a horrific disaster in 1904. Let's not get into that. It's a bit dark. Let's not dwell on it. Um, oh, I could see a picture of it now. No. <laughs> Strom, Doctor Strom, Mendelstrom is a uh, a character from the 1960s who ties in nicely with how they've done it here. He he's revealed to be the scientist that creates the goblin formula, the what the thing that Norman drinks to get power. Mm. He was Norman's Norman Osborn's college professor. And became an early investor in Oscor. But Norman ah. wanted the goblin formula all to himself. So he frames Strom for embezzlement and has him sent to prison. <laughs> this happens before this whole Spider-Man stuff goes on. And so when, when you get a, a you know, Strom's time is up, he gets released from prison and he designs and builds a whole bunch of like deadly, dangerous robots to attack Osborne. And he starts calling himself the Robot Master. Um, he has a little fight with Spidey, but he's quite old and he's quite frail. Oh, wow. He dies of a heart attack <laughs> during the fight. Um, that sounds like, and the, then a bit, the most a bit like our Marvel headless character. friend Arnim so, Zola. Strom oh, yeah. downloads his consciousness into a series of computers, and then comes back as like a cyborg villain <laughs> a few times in the eighties and nineties. That was what it was all about in the 80s and 90s. Let's make him a cyborg. That's what the kids like. I think it's, honestly, it's all Terminator and Robocop's fault. I was about to say it was because of Terminator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Completely. At one point, Strom has an alias. His name is Gaunt. <laughs> He's That's... very thin. Fear me, for I am a bit peckish. <laughs> <laughs> I could do with something in my belly. I'm a bit gaunt. Oh. <laughs> bit yeah, that's his, that's his villain name. Gaunt. Wow. I mean, I, 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 might, I might Google him and search that in a bit. But anyway. Right, if you do Google... Yeah. Uh, um, a public service announcement for you at home. We'll do a special episode on this. Mm. If you do Google Gaunt slash Strom and you're tempted to look at his involvement in something called the Clone Saga, effing don't... <laughs> Let me do. Let me. Let me. I'll, I'll do a special episode. And I'll talk you through it because you really shouldn't do it on your own. You need someone to hold your hand. It's dreadful. But that's all I'm going to say right now. We haven't got the time. I'm just looking at a picture of him now, and he's 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 like got a cyborg chassis, and it's basically Terminator. It is Terminator. Yeah, roughly. It's 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 all the exoskeleton of Terminator, isn't it? But yeah. with a little bit of. It's got a little bit of skin on it at the top. Yeah. Yeah, what what an influential film that was. Anyway, pressing play again. Meanwhile, General Slocum. Oh, sorry. No, I, 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 pressing play again. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, so back to the film. I forgot to scroll. Peter wakes up the next morning feeling better than ever. He also learns his scrawny physique now ripples with muscles and his eyes Ripples. Ripples. I thought muscles weren't supposed to ripple. I thought that was fat. Check me out, babes. <laughs> look, at the, look at my muscle rippling. It's supposed to be firm. <laughs> and his eyesight is perfect. At school that day, he learns he can shoot webs out of his wrists. I mean, I know that's his power, but that's always the weird part. Uh, also, I always thought the transformation was an allegory for puberty. I know that's sort of like an obvious, like, uh, it. 
It is in the movie. Yeah. It doesn't come across that way in the in the comics. I thought not so. in the original stuff anyway. They they weren't dan- they weren't touching on that subject really. Yeah, it's a bit, um, it's a bit strong. Yeah, it just it, but it very much is in this film. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. Oh, Especially because t- the web fluid looks like ejaculate. There's no way around that. There's no getting away from it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not happy talking about it. But I would be a fool, ladies and gentlemen, if I sat here on this podcast and didn't compare Spider-Man's web fluid to ejaculate in those in those scenes. I, anyway. It, was, it, it, it <laughs> came to mind. I have a very filthy head on me. Speaking of those scenes, uh, the montage of him trying out his powers uh, when he's trying out the, the webs, the web slinging, is easily one of the most joyful things I've ever watched. He, yeah, he, uh, he is so happy. He is so happy trying yeah. this out. Like he's climbing the wall, and then he tries out what what is the special command? What is the the the, the, the flick I have to do to make the web happen? And he's going through them. It was just it 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 really captures something that is so so. Spider Man is wracked with a lot of guilt and a lot of tragedy, but at the same time. He has it is thrilling and exhilarating to be Spider Man, and when the character is written properly, it is able. You, you have to be able to balance the two things. He genuinely loves web slinging, yeah, and that is swinging through the, the town. It, it, it. You have to have. Uh, um, he, it's drawn with a great passion for the skyline of New York and Manhattan. It's written with a great love for the for the for the, for the city, yeah. But it's also this thing of he just genuinely loves doing it, <laughs> and when you you have to balance that with him being kind of guilty and and wracked with with kind of tragedy and responsibility and things. But at the same time, he does genuinely is thrilled and exhilarated by being the character by being parts of being that person. You know, yeah. if he could just web swing and then leave the rest of the stuff behind, he'd be very happy. Um, but i, I got to say, the closest I've come... I mean, seeing it in the movie is incredible. The the, 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 the game on the PS4, when oh. you get to web-swing in that, it's like, this is this is genuinely so much fun. I'm not entirely sure I want to jump down and start beating people up. I think swinging around the city is just more fun. They and have, that was really cool to have that captured. Uh, Spider-Man 2, uh, based on the Sam Raimi one, on the PS2 uh, managed to get that as well. They, 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 they I, ever play, I don't think I ever played that one. I think Spider-Man Four pretty much did similar, did it similarly, but way better. They got, they got New York just right, but yeah, yeah, similar kind of game. Loved it, but uh, so now that some people might be confused to see that he can shoot webs out of his body uh, and not his web shooters, what can you tell us about that? Because I didn't know about the web shooters until uh, as Jonathan Ross pointed it out. He went, no, no, it's web shooters. It's not. He doesn't have it inside his wrists. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Ross, for those not in the know, oh. is a, uh, a UK comedian, but also he spent a long, 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 long time presenting a film review show. Um, and he is a, a confirmed and affirmed um, comic book fan as well. So whenever he got to review a comic book movie, that was kind of fun and kind of cool. Yeah. Um, in the comic book, Spider-Man has web shooters, metallic web shooters that he wears on his wrists. He invents the web shooters because he's very smart. He invents this amazing web fluid because um, he's in the comic books, Peter is a child progeny of science and maths. Mm. And it's, it's a big part of the comic books that he could run out of web fluid during a fight. <laughs> he could run out of web fluid when he's trying to save someone and not have it to hand. Yeah, That's an obstacle to overcome. It's also something that he has to spend time and money to make. 
He's a hard-working, self-made hero. He doesn't have Morgan Freeman to hand him everything one after one phone call, you know. And he doesn't have limitless budget to to just uh, just get me nine million batarangs done. Um, so there are numerous issues in the comic books where Pete is so broke he can't afford to buy the materials in to make any web fluid. So there'll be issues and after issues of him going around being Spider-Man, having to save people without any web fluid. So it, it is a high part of, of, of the comic books. In the movie, though, and I can I can understand some of this, they they didn't want him to make they didn't want to make Peter that intelligent. They didn't want to make him kind of a prodigy. Yeah. They they feared that that would make him less relatable to the audience. That's what I was about to so, say. He wouldn't be relatable yeah. if he was some kind of genius. I disagree. I disagree that he wouldn't be relatable because I got I got I got you know four hundred million copies of a comic book and fifty years that say he is relatable being that smart. Um, but people in Hollywood are stupid, so <laughs> you just kind of fix a problem that isn't a problem. So yeah, it's it kind of it's it's it, I'll admit it's neater. It's kind of neater and tidier to be an organic power. The comic books briefly changed the comic book character as well. Spider Man briefly had the organic webs as his power kind of around the time roughly around the time between i think the first and the second movie he they changed the character so he had organic webs but it, it didn't last very long and we quickly got the real proper peter back with the the web shooters are cool man also if you're making a movie about a highly marketable character don't remove an obvious toy that's oh. a stupid thing to do what was the Freakazoid term? Toy leak or something? Something. Oh, I love Freakazoid, but I don't know that. I don't know that reference. It was. It was a reference, and it's a. It, it's, it's. It's applicable to all MCU stuff. I think I mentioned it before. Basically, the definition of toy leak or something. It's a word like that. Is anything that's featured in a cartoon or a film that could be easily marketed as a toy. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And of course, later in the episode, he's he's suddenly got a freak mobile. He's suddenly got all this extra stuff, and it's and it's all because they're trying to market toys out of it. <laughs> His brain is overloading, but it, it's got a chocolate coating. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Freakazoid, but I won't go into that. Who isn't? Who isn't? Yeah. Anyway, so back to the movie. He demonstrates his new agility by catching Mary Jane and her food tray when she slips at lunch and then beating up an enraged Flash in a fist fight. That night, he and Mary Jane casually flirt across the fence, separating their backyards. Sorry, I phrased that wrong. That, that, sounded, that sounded a bit odd. That's a, <laughs> separating you the backyards. You made it sound like it was an innuendo. That... Separating their backyards. Whoa. Anyway, they're, 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 <laughs> different, they're different backyards and they're flirting. Even that sounds like an innuendo. Although Flash breaks this up when he arrives with his new car, Peter believes he... his new car, right, yeah. is like an, a 1950s style car, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a roadster. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was meant to be a nod to like the 60s comics or something. It's cool. I loved it, but it just it, it gave Flash. Like a depth that I don't think his character is meant to have. Like, oh, he's he's an awful, arrogant bully, but also he loves vintage cars. <laughs> like, it was so odd. Like, 
the character should have rocked up in like a douche mobile. Yes. You know, like a four by four or something yep. something that you'd imagine a, a high school bully to have. Not like, oh wow, he's he's really spent a lot of time restoring that. <laughs> It's just every time I see the movie, it strikes me as utterly weird. It did strike. I, I don't know. I, I just saw it as an expensive car, like you know, you get an old Aston Martin or something, or an old Porsche. But it, yeah, but that would be. Imagine if Flash rocks up in a restored Aston Martin. Like it would be. Oh, this guy's got. Hey, listen, he's an arsehole. But he's got a lot of taste. He's got a lot of taste. He's a tasty <laughs> arsehole. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. Some sound effects in this episode. <laughs> anyway, so Peter believes he needs a car to impress Mary Jane, but knows neither he or nor the cash-strapped and retired Ben and May would be able to afford one. So, also after the fight he has with Flash, the vibe he gives off is George McFly from Back to the Future. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally. Like, it's like, Absolutely is. Are you okay? I was always expecting him just to say that to Mary Jane. And also, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit where he comes out the front door, and Mary Jane's also coming out the front door, and her dad is yelling at her with a wife beater yeah. on some horrible stuff. I mean, that is a scummy dad right there. This is, this is immensely frustrating. Yeah. There are two occasions in these three films that they hint towards giving Mary Jane depth oh. and they do not ever do it. And this, this this is a part of Mary Jane, the character's backstory. She has um, an alcoholic, abusive father oh. and a deceased mother. Some of that would have been fun to have in the film, <laughs> rather than her just being a mirror upon which Peter can bounce off. <laughs> but we don't get it. We don't get it. I, we'll we'll delve into it a little bit more because Mary Jane is an incredible and fascinating character. Uh, but you know, not in these films. What's <laughs> <laughs> a shame? That is a shame. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you're spending 108 million, you can't afford to have you know. Uh, an interesting love interest. No, 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 no. She's, not, she's, not, not enough money for that. She gotta be a damsel in distress, always in distress. So yeah, we. St- yeah. What, what you want to pay to just just to give you a little teaser? Uh, this is not Mary Jane Watson. That's all I'm going to say. That's not who this is. Ooh. So yeah, carry on. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Mystery averted. Uh, we started this journey, Rob, with billionaire Tony Stark, and now we're seeing a broke superhero. I mean. Does that play a part of his character in the comic book stories? I know we've hinted on it that he has his struggles, but is he, he is broke in the comic? It, 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 yeah, it's it's hugely, hugely important to the comic books. Peter Parker's life is an absolute mess, and that is deeply and fundamentally important to, to the character. His he and his him, him and his aunt are are working class New Yorkers on a on an issue on a you know a um a month by month issue by issue basis. They struggle to pay the bills. Oh. He has to balance being a student, being Spider-Man, and really a desperate, desperate try to earn money, um, which is why the Daily Bugle job is so important to him at an early age and all of that. There are scenes where uh, Spidey's camera breaks, so he doesn't get the photos that he needs, so he doesn't have enough money to afford his aunt's medicine. Oh. It creates this well of sympathy for the character. And it creates all these 
relatable obstacles for him to overcome. Yeah. I cannot imagine what it is like to fight Electro. I know what it's like to not have enough money to afford things. I know what it's like to be worried about where the where the, where the next bill is going to be paid. I can't think of a, a single other superhero at that point, or even kind of really beyond too much, yeah. you know, in that era, that has had to deal with not being able to afford rent. Pete gets kicked out of his apartment. He's unemployed for a large period of time. He has to borrow money, and he feels horrible about it. You know, Peter Parker is the audience. He is the reader. His everyday problems, like that kid we, we talked about when he when he wrote about the college campus, he, he, his problems reflect ours in a way that Batman can never do, Superman can never do, Green Lantern can never do, even Tony Stark, Hulk, they, they, just, they are nowhere near as relate. They have The Marvel characters have a lot more relatability than DC characters of his age. But Pete is the top of the mountain in terms of that. His life is, a, is kind of a constant struggle because of his background, because of his class, because of his economic situation. And that is something that I feel, as much as I enjoy them, is sorely missed from the MCU version of the character with his billionaire best friend. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It, I, 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 again, again, I find it incredibly endearing. Uh, so pressing play... Uh, Peter sees an advert in the paper for a local professional professional wrestling league uh, willing to pay $3,000 to anyone who can survive three minutes in the ring with their champion, Bonesaw. Peter designs and sews... Bonesaw is ready! (laughs) (laughs) I'll go into impressions of him later, but... (laughs) (laughs) The best bit of the movie. I'm sorry. It, I, it's the best bit. It's one of the most memorable moments for me, but we'll get onto oh, that yeah. in a sec. We'll get onto that. We'll get onto that when we get onto that. It's down on the list to get onto that. So he shows a colourful costume and a mask to hide his face. Now, um, Rob, as as obviously as you've demonstrated there, you're a wrestling fan as well. So is is this advert as unbelievable as it sounds? Were there any? Was there anything like this like ever? Like the three three thousand? No. no. No, no. Listen, I work in prof- I work in British wrestling. No, no, no promoters got three grand. <laughs> uh, that's 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 not happening, kids. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so in, in two thousand and two, that is unbelievable. Yeah. But that is how professional wrestling used to work to some degree. No way. Before it was openly admitted that wrestling was more of a performance than a sport. Wrestlers were generally a lot tougher, and you would have lots of people working for you who could actually and seriously fight. Yeah, they were generally called shooters. Right. Um, in in wrestling parlance, or in in kind of carny circus talk, to to shoot is to do something for real. To work is to do something, uh, not 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 pretend, but to do something pre planned yeah yeah so if you if you could shoot that meant you could really hurt somebody for real so to convince your audience that everything they were going to see on the show was real you would have a tough as nails ring real wrestler in the ring Mm. and invite someone from the public um to come up and try and beat him in the ring for cash yeah and once people had seen a real wrestler one wrestler handily just embarrass humiliate and hurt 
and they wouldn't like knock out anyone's teeth or anything. It would be it's not punching. It would be holds. It would be manipulation. It would be grounding, and yeah. it would be yeah. making someone suffer a lot of pain. Once they've seen that a couple of times, then they're suitably convinced. You know what? Actually, wrestling is real. So the rest of the show must be real. It's a really, really canny trick that was used. That's a very good trick. Uh, there's a, yeah, there's a legendary British wrestler. Well, is it to another degree? You know, you know when you in wrestling they do the thing where they hit someone on the chest with an open palm. Yeah, you yeah. genuinely do that. Yeah, you'll go around and do that around the outside of the ring, so everyone can see. Blimey, they are actually hitting each other. I'm, I don't know what else is going on, but that bit's real. So then you get them in the ring, and you and then then the audience is kind of oh well, maybe some of this is. There's a, a legendary British wrestler called William Regal. Yes, who's yeah. worked for the WWF and WCW. Tremendous, tremendous uh, wrestler and, and, and public figure. As a young man, he made his money doing exactly what Bonesaw McGraw does here <laughs> in, on the Blackpool Pier at wrestling shows. No way. He fought members of the public for money. And he's told every day by his employer, if any of them beat you, you have lost your job. <laughs> so that's, that's what he did. He fought members of the public. And then after he'd done that, he would have to go and do a, an actual match with, a, with another wrestler. Um, and that's that's how, as a young man, he he earned his crust. Yeah, tough as nails. It's, it's, but not in two thousand and two. I was about to say, and not for three grand. Yeah, yeah, obvious. <laughs> I was about to say, William William Regal though, because I I I, I was into wrestling at one point. He always came off as the privileged, like sneering wrestler, and to know he had that yeah. much of a very gritty background completely tarnishes that for me. I've I've been in a I've been in a room with him and I've I've spoken to him yeah and I asked him a certain I asked him a question and there was a a cold silence and Ooh. there was a way he spoke to me and I genuinely it, I think it's the I I can't it's the only time I've been really intimidated by somebody that I know isn't going to hurt me because mm. <laughs> they're a public figure and all that but I was just intimidated by his presence he's a da- he. He's a, a a wonderful, lovely man, a great, great, great wrestler, and all that. But yeah, you you look into his eyes when he gives certain answers to certain questions, and you know that he can handle himself. <laughs> and you don't you don't you don't want to get on the wrong side of it. Oof, yeah. Oh god, that's a nice little nice little tangent there. <clears throat> so here as well, we see uh, Peter basically sewing his costume together in his bedroom. Uh, is that something we see in the comics, or does he just have a costume? No, listen, he's not got a billionaire best friend to hand him a costume. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, he, part of Spider-Man is being a self-made hero. He, he doesn't doesn't get gifted a suit by a benefactor. He stitches it together. He has to learn to sew and stitch. And it's a recurring theme in the comics that the costume will get ripped and he's got to fix it. <laughs> and if he doesn't have time to fix it, he'll be Spider-Man in a ripped costume. And the costume is filthy. And he's got to find a way to discreetly clean it, even though he lives with his aunt or he lives with a with a roommate or he lives in a shared accommodation. How is he going to clean his costume without anyone finding out? And he has to go to the laundrette, and, no. and he has to hide his identity. Where there's a time where he had to wear jeans for a few issues because the costume was torn, and he didn't have anything to replace the bottom <laughs> half with. And yeah, it's another part of, of Pete's kind of homegrown problems, along with the complete lack of cash. I, I actually no jeans would be bad to wear. I mean, is it, what is the? Um, do they ever tell you what the, the costume's made of in the comics? Is it lycra? 
Mm, no, they, they never really say. So the the get out clause for a lot of characters in Marvel, um, Mister Fantastic. How does his costume stretch when he stretches? Yeah. How does the Invisible Woman's costume go invisible when when she goes invisible? Yeah. How does the Human Torches not burn to cinders? Well, they they neatly explain that by one of them, Mister Fantastic, being Reed Richards, a super smart, super <clears> genius. <throat> He invents a fabric made from unstable molecules, (laughs) which means that they will react to kind of whatever's going on. So his own costume stretches, his wife's costume turns invisible, things like that. And that's applied to quite a lot of the other characters, superheroes. You can all say that unstable molecules. Pete doesn't have that connection to begin with. I mean, and certainly from seeing all the other things that happen to his costume, mm. he does not have access to unstable molecule costumes. They are just, I don't know, cloth or something. Maybe, maybe lycra. Yeah, it's not really, it's not really spoken about. Yeah, yeah. I think is that that's always the first thought of where is he getting that material? How does he learn how to sew? You know, it, it's a million times better than the weird Andrew Garfield version, where the costume is made from basketballs. Oh, oh! Do you remember been, that? It's been years since I. He cuts up basketballs and sews them together, and that's the material of the cost. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking there, but yeah. I, I might need to rewatch that. I, I say rewatch it. I was like, eh, it was. I'm not a fan of that one. Not a fan. It'll, listen, listen. We're, we're we're here for the long game. Yeah. As long as people keep paying on Patreon, <laughs> uh, keep keep the lights switched on. We're gonna we're gonna go through everything that Marvel have been associated with. So. I, I imagine we'll get to the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, the amazing ones, at some point. At some point, at some point. I haven't seen. Save the... your misery for when we're recording. Yeah, I'll <laughs> save it for then. Don't you worry. Uh, anyway, back to the story. Peter has to sneak out to the wrestling show, telling Uncle Ben and Aunt May that he's going to the library to study. In the car, Uncle Ben encourages Peter not to get into any more fights. He might have the power to beat Flash Thompson, the Flash Thompsons of the world, but with great power comes great responsibility. The responsibility to know when and how best to use that power. Peter reacts badly. He tells Ben he is not Peter's father and should not act like he is. That was cutting that moment, wasn't it? That was a very cutting yeah. moment. Even though I was like, yeah. ooh, how dare you say that to that lovely man. And that's... What, yeah, that what what is? I felt this the first time I watched it, and I still f- feel it now when I rewatched it. That haven't we all done that? Like lashed out at somebody like that, especially mm. someone that really you really love and cares care you yeah. care about, and they care about you like yeah. a parent or or a partner or a brother or a sister, and you've said something that's really cutting and awful like that, and it 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 feels horrible. And and genuinely, since seeing this film, it stayed with me that whenever that happens, I this is this this will sound like BS, but I do remember I do think about this film, and I do think about this is the last thing he says to his uncle. Yeah, and I always, whenever I something like that crops up in my life, and you feel crap about it, I, I have a, a slight panic of. I have to. I need to send a text or make a phone call, or yeah. I need to. I need to quickly get this sorted because what if it's the last thing that we that I say to that person? You know, you'd, I'd feel. I'd feel. I, I can see. I've seen Toby Maguire's face in this movie. Shortly, it's become a meme. I don't <laughs> want to look like that. <laughs> I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that heartbroken. 
Indeed. Uh, but also, not only that, th- th- now this line has popped up so many times in different things. Uh, we hear the line from Uncle Ben about power and responsibility, and you know that's that's a line we heard in the old cartoon series and in the newer movies as well. But how important is that line to the comic book version of Spider-Man? Well, I mean, you could say it is what defines him. Um, mm. That phrase dates back to at least the French Revolution as a moral maxim, yeah, a philosophical kind of turn of phrase. Winston Churchill's quoted as saying it in the early 1900s. But really, Stan Lee is given full credit for popularising it through pop culture and taking this bit of key philosophy out into the out into the general public. Yeah. It's become known to philosophers now as the Parker Principle. That's why they that's what they refer to it as. And like a Stan um, Lee thing, it's alliterated. <laughs> absolutely, baby. Um yeah. Marvel Comics in the eighties and nineties, when I was growing up and reading, at the top on page one of every comic, at the very top um, it was like a like a, a caption banner where it had a little blurb that summed up each character. So if you're reading a Captain America comic, it would say something like, granted powers to fight the evils of fascism, Steve Rogers became Captain America, but then he fell into some ice and blah, blah, blah. And today he carries on that fight as Captain America. Like everyone would say a thing, you know, very quick blurb yeah. to sum up the book you're reading. And the Spider-Man summation through all of the 80s and the 90s always ended with the line, with great power comes great responsibility because it is fundamentally who he is. Um, in in the first issue, Amazing Fantasy fifteen, when it, it's not said, it's not a line said by any character. Mm. It's a line in a caption box that is said by the narrator, kind of summing up the story. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then in, in subsequent retellings of his origin, it gets attributed to Uncle Ben because that seems to be the, it makes sense. You know, because it's such an important part of him. Before he, Peter learns this lesson, he has great power, and his immediate desire is to be selfish, <laughs> to get money, to get respect, to get the girl, to get, get, get. And once he learns this lesson, taught to him through tragedy, that's when he becomes a hero. Mm. At that moment, he doesn't become a hero when he gets his powers at all, which is the focus of an awful lot of pre-war superhero characters it's a lot of and when he finds the magic ring he's a hero and when he gets splashed with chemicals and has super speed he becomes a hero that's not what happens with spider-man the journey is different um and this lesson is a great burden to him really truly Uh, uh, not not necessarily in every issue but mm, thereabouts we see him time and time again in the comics want to leave this life behind to have something of his own. And he will out loud argue with the universe or think in his head, haven't I done enough now? Haven't I used this power to save enough lives? Am I not now justified in, in leaving it behind and, 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 and having my own life and not having this burden anymore? And the answer that Peter always arrives at is no. Uh, as long as the power is his, as long as he sees someone in jeopardy and can do something about it it is an absolute obligation to do something and so he can never he can never escape it he can never walk away from it um so yeah it is it is it is the core of him that's a lot like uh that's, that's like with captain america in the film we watched 
earned he earned his power. Yeah, and he, he yeah. here Spider Man received his power but earned his status as a hero. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's part of why he always feels inadequate is because he's always because he starts as we're about to see with such a massive failure as as you'll you'll talk us through. Yes, the action continues. So, at the wrestling show, the ring announcer comes up with a show business name for Peter and dubs him Spider-Man for the first time. Peter not only survives the wrestling match, he defeats Bonesaw in two minutes. Instead of the full prize money, the promoter pays Peter only $100. Angry at being gypped, when an angry armed robber holds up the promoter, Peter stands by and just lets it happen. Now... Uh, you know you're you're a big wrestling fan. This is a very good scene. Uh, great oh. cameos here, by the way, from Macho Man Randy Savage, and not only that, long Sam Raimi uh, collaborator Bruce Campbell, famous for playing Ash, Ash Williams from The Evil Dead. Uh, brilliant. I, I, was Ma- was Macho Man Randy Savage still uh, an active wrestler around that point? No. Yeah. Two thousand and two. No. Um, I mean, he he would come back and do a couple of, uh, of matches after this, but no. Um, Two thousand and one, um, the company he was working for, WCW, goes kind of bust and gets bought by WWF, and so that was kind of he he would already be gone by that point. Yeah. No, um, but I mean, Jesus, doesn't he just leap out at the screen at you? Oh God, he's, he's doesn't he just? Yeah. Isn't he an arresting character? He's 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 one of those wrestlers who is just ridiculous, but so ridiculous it's it, it, it's wonderful. And I, and I've watched a fair few of the old videos of him being interviewed pre-match, and the way he speaks is like, "I am the cream of the crop," and he just comes out with absolute nonsense. But it's see, I, I, I I'm going to have to disagree there. Oh, that sounds to me like you're describing the Ultimate Warrior. The Ultimate Warrior comes out with absolute nonsense. M- Macho Man, I mean, he's he's very um, erratic and he is very eccentric. Yeah, but it's I I think it's with respect to <laughs> to my dear co-host. I think it's a little unfair to to paint a picture that he was incoherent or he was, you know, didn't make any sense. He he. His promo ability and the way he spoke. I mean, this is not what this podcast is about. <laughs> I'm so not, let's, sorry. Let's not I'm let's sorry. not go down this. But he he, he <laughs> let's just say he he ripples with like whenever he's talking. Yeah. On screen, he is. It's like he's about to explode any second. Yeah. And that is the most exciting thing I have ever seen in any performer. Yeah. He's incredible. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and his voice is just. Have you got it in you? Can you pull it out? Bonesaw is ready. <laughs> That's really good, mate. That's really good. <laughs> what's, what, what's the, my, my other line I like was, you're going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you just do, this isn't in the movie. This is okay, just for me. Okay, okay, okay. Can you say I know what makes you tick in that voice? Sorry, what? I-, I know what makes you tick. I know what makes you tick. That's it. That's perfect. That's okay. peak. Oh, peak macho. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I haven't practiced that in ages, but anyway. So, Rob, 
this whole wrestling thing does sound does feel a bit like an odd side mission in a Spider-Man story. I mean, is there anything <laughs> about Bonesaw wrestling and a dodgy promoter in the comic books? Anything like that at all? Absolutely, yeah. Yay! It's all there. <laughs> um, and it and it actually feels more in place in the 1960s. Yeah. When wrestling was like I mean, well, probably by 63 maybe not, but throughout the 50s wrestling had been the number one thing on television. Yeah. And it still was very, very big in the '60s on TV. So yeah, it does. It does make sense that you kind of go there for money. Um, Peter's top priority is making money with his power. It's not going out and being a hero. So yeah, it's not Bonesaw McGraw or Bonesaw in, in the in the comic books. It's a character called Crusher Hogan, <laughs> a big bald muscly wrestler um, yeah, yeah. and that's that's how he gets seen on TV for the first time in the costume with the name and all that in the comic books when the robber when when he refuses to stop an armed robber uh, there's he kind of lets him run past him and get into a lift which I think happens in the movie as well and there's yeah. a cop right behind the robber and the cop like goes at the spider and is like all all you had to do was stick out your foot and trip him up. Yeah. You didn't even have to get involved, really. Mm. This Peter refuses to take the smallest of actions to help someone else, uh, and that always stuck with me. That it's that it's not you refuse to get in a fight with someone. Yeah, you refuse to chase someone down and tackle them. That is kind of almost how it comes about here in this in this movie. In the comic books, it is distilled to something even smaller that you or me could do. You don't need to... It's not that Peter needed to have had powers to affect this. It is that all you had to do was trip him up because there was a policeman just there. <laughs> you know, if you tripped him over with your foot, this all would have been avoided. And, you know, I think that's... that's um, That always stuck with me as a, as a big thing when I was reading as a kid. It's it's it is, it is a moment where you think even if even if you you know you'd been chipped over you could have just tripped him up, tripped him over and then took taken the high ground on it but but instead he chose to be petty. You could have tripped him up and then in the confusion, uh, taken that money, Yoja. <laughs> that would have been. Oh <laughs> man, he's not playing the long game, Pete. Not playing the long game. Indeed, he's he's a young man who will learn. But anyway, things are getting rough for Pete. Uh, when he gets out to the street, he discovers the armed robber he let go has shot Uncle Ben and stole the car. In anguish, Peter chases down the robber and beats him viciously. The robber falls out of a window where his body is recovered by the police. So, this is probably the most defining thing, the moment for Spider-Man. Is Uncle Ben's death? Uh, Uncle Ben's death in the comic books. Uh, tell us about that and what it means to Peter. I mean, does it happen like this? Um, yeah, wow. yeah, pretty, pretty much. Um, this is when the lesson of I mean, that doesn't happen in the car. It's not a carjacking. The armed robber breaks into Peter's home and and shoots him. Shoots Uncle Ben at home while Pete's not there. Mm. Oh uh, no. But this is when that lesson of great power comes, great responsibility takes hold. If it's a buzzword to you, as it can be when you hear it repeated so many times, yeah. it, it, and that's very easy to happen. It's just this is a this is a direct consequence of Peter being selfish. Yeah, and and that's that's why 
this is a tragedy that haunts Spider-Man in a way that, like, the death of Batman's parents don't haunt Batman the same way. It, it's a, it's very different. Batman had nothing to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Pete feels, forever feels responsible for his uncle's death. Yeah. And how could he not? And on top of that, he has to hide that from his aunt. He has to live with the woman that's been a mother to him. Oh, God, of course. Yeah. And, and, and know that the reason that your husband is dead is, in my mind, me. It's it, it it's it, it hangs over the whole Amazing Spider-Man, you know, lineage for fifty odd years. Writer Dan Slot, I think, best articulated this death and Spider-Man's view on the world. Uh, in his, he he wrote Amazing Spider-Man for a decade, ten on ten brilliant years, and he wrote it was a, a line that he had Mary Jane sort of say when she was explaining to Peter how Peter is because he doesn't know. And she sort of says that Spider-Man has to save everybody and he, he takes it so personally because he knows that everybody is someone's Uncle Ben. Yeah. You know? yeah. Every single person is that important in the world. And that's the first like the first lesson he learns is that. And I think that's deeply, deeply key. It's not lofty principles. It's not fighting for truth justice in the American way. It is that that guy is someone's uncle. That guy is someone's girlfriend. That you know, it's all of that. It's it's um a really, yeah, really. It's I think it's probably the best use of death because I don't know if I mean Batman. The death of Batman's parents obviously fuels Batman, but I don't think you feel it in the same way as yeah. you do when you read this origin. It's yeah. From 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 what you've said there, I mean, I didn't even think. About the fact he has to hide it from his up from from Aunt May, I mean that's just yeah. the the amount of mental weight and strain on him each day. God, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we fingers crossed, we'll get to do the the second of the Raimi trilogy, and that comes up then in what for my money is the best superhero film ever made, which Ooh. is Spider Man Two. A few um, people have a yeah. few people have said that, but not enough to make it universal. But I'm I I, I yeah. think we should cover that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Excellent. So the movie continues. That same night, a menacing figure wearing the stolen Oscorp exoskeleton and riding the jet glider attacks a weapons test at Quest Aerospace, Oscorp's chief competitor. Their prototype is destroyed, and General Slocum is killed. Peter is inspired by Ben's words to use his spider powers for the greater good. He designs a new costume and swings around New York, foiling petty robberies and muggings as the amazing Spider-Man. This does not endear him to J. Jonah Jameson, the editor and publisher of the Daily Bugle, New York's leading muck-racking tabloid. However, when he learns Spider-Man sells newspapers... He puts out a call to photographers for better photos for his front page. As well as this, there is a Vox Pop section that they do, like a montage of people's yeah. opinions on Spider-Man. And it, that, is, that is brilliant, the, the, what, what everyone's coming out with. Also, I looked at that. Fun fact, there's that one uh, goth-looking chick who goes, Oh, guy with eight hands. Sounds kind of hot. Do you know who that is? 
Is it Xena Warrior Princess? It is indeed Lucy Lawless. I didn't realise that. Yeah, of course. Pat- it's, a Ra- it's, a Raimi, it's a Raimi production, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't realise the connection between Raimi and Xena Warrior Princess. I, I had no idea. Raimi's production company make Xena Warrior Princess and Adventures of Hercules. Um, I didn't know. Raimi's brother is, appears in acts in a bunch of them. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ted Raimi, isn't it? Ted Raimi. Yeah, I, I, I spied yeah. that. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, d- Connecting the dots, if you will, but I love that. That Vox Pop montage is brilliant, but not as brilliant as by far the best thing about this film. <laughs> Oscar-winning actor J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Oh my god! Oh my yeah. god! I mean, okay, okay. Before we get into J. Jonah Jameson, let's get hark back to memes. I mean, we missed out. Uh, obviously, I'm something of a scientist myself, which is one of the. I, I cackled when that line came up because <laughs> it, not only is it cheesy, but because that. But every time, every time they do a meme of J. Jonah Jameson going, "Get me pictures of Spider Man." I mean, it's just. <laughs> but oh god, is 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 a performance in this is just. I mean. I, I, it is played for laughs, isn't it? He is he he, he is supposed to be a ridiculous character, uh, the high the hyperbole of high blood pressure boss who, who who's yeah. who's who's just uh, dictatorial to the point of of just stupidity. But I know he's the most popular character in these movies. But tell us more about how he is in the comics. Stanley has said that when he wrote um, Peter Parker, he wrote a character that was very... It was the closest to him he'd ever written. Yeah. Very close to him at a young age. Yeah. And then when he wrote J. Jonah Jameson, he wrote essentially a grumpier version of himself as an adult. (laughs) And um, Spider-Man writers from down the line, Jerry Conray, Tom DeFalco, they've gone on record in interviews stating that Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson is as close to Stanley as you can get. No. Um, a, a, fu- a fundamentally decent person, but a very demanding boss, and someone that can be wildly erratic and really quite shallow. Um, yeah, so what, what we see, that, that I think that is absolutely fascinating, that in some of these interactions, you can see Stan Lee interacting with himself. Him as a child, interacting with himself as, as a grown-up and how he is now, and that's just... Uh, <laughs> That he's the one yelling, "Get me better pictures of Spider Man." That's what he yelled. Yeah. When Jack Kirby handed in those first designs, Stan Lee was like, "No, get me better pictures of Spider Man." <laughs> hire, hire Steve Ditko. He draws weird people. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so. That's Stan, man. Uh, no that's, that's Jay. I mean, he's he's introduced. Jay, Jameson's introduced right at the very start of the first issue of, of Amazing Spider Man in in '63. And immediately, is a, is a brilliant antagonist, uses the media um, to, to, to turn the public against Spider-Man. And that's a tremendous aspect of the comic books. The public hate Spider-Man. They hate him. No. They believe everything they read in the Daily Bugle. Oh. So they believe Spider-Man is at best a bumbling idiot <laughs> and at worst a dangerous menace. He gets Spider-Man gets booed in the streets more often than not. As he's web swinging along, someone will always yell, "You're a menace at him." Um, it's just a wonderful view of grumpy New Yorkers, right? Yeah. There's, there's another. Here's another goddamn thing we have to deal with. The subway's terrible. The whole city stinks in the summer, and now we've got this Spider-Man menace causing traffic jams all the time. Ah, oh, 
Living in this city is such a night. We got Spider Man now. You know, it's it's really rich and really beautiful. And in in the comic books, Jameson's big issue with Spider Man seems to be centered around an early adventure where Spider Man saves Jameson's um, astronaut son, John oh, Jameson. Okay. From and he, and he feels that by doing that, he's really overshadowed him and stopped his son, who is a real hero, an astronaut, from getting the kind of adulation that, that should come with that. Yeah. And that seems to set off this vendetta against Spider-Man. Uh, but in the early days, Jameson's a straight-up villain. What? He He hires a deranged scientist to create killer robots called Spider-Slayers to go and destroy Spider-Man. He hires a private investigator and turns him into a supervillain called the Scorpion oh. and hires him to go and destroy Spider-Man. Uh, he hires mercenaries left, right and centre to hunt Spider-Man down. After a while, that settles down and the writers, Stan, I think, predominantly, realise that what's best for this character is to just be the kind of the public antagonist rather than a full-on villain. Yeah. Um, He's part of Spider-Man's supporting cast forever, really. It's, Spider-Man will constantly pop up to get petty revenge on Jameson for the articles and the front pages, the headlines and all that. He'll, like, web Jameson's mouth shut. Like, he'll web, he'll crawl on the outside of the, of the <laughs> Daily Bugle wall, open the window, and, like, sh- sh- shut his mouth with some web. He'll, like, uh, he'll stick his trousers to... This seat with web fluid, yeah. so that when he stands up, he'd rip his trousers off and <laughs> really just petty pranks. That, but all they they don't really do any harm, but they rile Jameson up. Over, over the years, Jameson's done all sorts of different things. He's quit the Bugle. He started a rival publication. In one brilliant uh, kind of twist for the character, in two thousand and nine, he becomes mayor of New York, Ooh. which was a an absolute golden age for Jameson and Spidey confrontations. It was genuinely beautiful. One time in the noughties, Spider-Man joins the Avengers. So he's very publicly being recognised as a proper superhero that saves the world. And Captain America has a face-to-face with Jameson, who's still doing all these publications about this vile menace. And Captain America is deeply respected by everyone. And the hope is that now, surely, by the most beloved hero of all time endorsing Spider-Man, putting his arm around Spider-Man, Jameson must now, surely, accept that Spider-Man is a hero. (laughs) Smash cut to the front page of the Daily Bugle the next day. The Avengers are now menaces. (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous vigilantes working with a criminal (laughs) Spider-Man. Let's never forgive them. He's like, he can't. He, he cannot let go. No matter what happens, he just he can't. Yeah, he can't let go. The only time Jameson has agreed with Spider Man and what he was doing and thought he was acting properly is this weird period of time when it wasn't actually really Spider Man. It was Doctor Octopus running around in Spider Man's body oh. and using supervillain tactics to clean up the city. Jameson at that stage was like, "Finally, he's finally acting properly." <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a great dynamic. J. Jonah James, to me, he just comes across like Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. He has that same kind of harsh haircut as well, I think. I don't know. You know what? There's a Mr. We, we, need to be, we need to watch these UK-specific references. I know. Um, there I, is, I, I think there's also Mr. Wilson is the same in, in Dennis, in the, the US 
thing, whatever oh, no. that's called, Dennis. I was on about the American one. I, I, I know. Oh, it's, that's not called Dennis the Menace as well, is it? It is. It's actually called, De- in America, it is called Dennis the Menace. Ah, but they call it over De- here it was just called Dennis. Over here they just call it Dennis to avoid confusion with our Dennis the Menace. We- Which one came first then? Must be ours, I imagine. I think. I mean, we were in the war first. We had Dennis the Menace first. I'm sure that's how it works. <laughs> we'll research it later. I don't know if it comes technically comes under Marvel. I think he's got some. He's got just a tremendously unique hair, though, uh, Jameson. Yeah. You know the the, the 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 sort of. It's not quite a Hitler mustache. It's a more of a. It's more of a thicker br- brush mustache. Yeah, broom between handle. him and because that's the thing you don't get in this movie with Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn. They got the weirdest hair. In the Marvel Universe in the comic books. Really? It's utterly bizarre. Yeah. Can you Google Google Norman Osborn's hair? Um, we'll put this up on the Patreon as well for you to take a look at. Um, it's... Uh, he's He's got... He's, it, it, oh. What? That is a weird widow's peak he's got going on. Yeah, and it's also the... It's like he's got... He's like he's got cornrows. Yeah. But they're not cornrows. And it's got a widow's peak, and it's yeah, it's just utterly weird. I gotta look uh, at Harry now. There's a Harry, yeah, Harry inherits the same kind of hair, no, <laughs> and the same widow's peak as well. And they both have weird faces. Bless, no. <laughs> but at least they've not got the J, the J Jonah. Yeah, triple J's. Yep, that's Stanley mustache perfection right there. So. Yeah, well, where, 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 where was I? Where, we got distracted with Jay Jonah Jameson. I mean, I we did, I, we did, I, I, we did. I, I, I will say one thing. I, I hope J.K. Simmons continues to play him. I can't imagine anyone else playing him, to be honest. Well, he is. It's been announced. Oh, he is. Well, I know at the end of uh, the last Spider-Man film, it, he pops yeah, up. but it's just been announced that uh, yeah, he he is returning to the, to the MCU to the role. Uh, slightly balding head and all. Yeah, um, and it does look like he will be because in the in the I don't want to give too much away if you've not seen the Far From Home, but it does look, from what we've seen, like he will be hosting some sort of TV show, which is something that does happen towards the end of Dan Slott's run. Um, Spider uh, J. Jonah gets deposed as mayor of New York and starts to have this um, this opinionated, almost Alex Jones Infowars style uh YouTube slash TV show yeah. about this menace That's plaguing a, our city. Exactly what came to mind when I saw that bit in the film. I went, oh, it's Alex Jones. Yeah, great. He's, he's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, or, or again, yeah. great source material to take from. It, it's great. It's it's great. So the action rolls on. Peter, Harry, and Mary Jane graduate from high school and move to Manhattan. Peter and Harry get a loft together and attend classes at Empire State. Mary Jane works as a waitress and struggles to get auditions. MJ and Harry start a relationship. Harry apologises to Peter, but points out Peter was always too shy to make a move himself. So, let's start talking about Harry Osborn. I mean, does this same love triangle pop up in the comics? What's my catchphrase? Yeah, but no. Oh, <laughs> sort of, but not really. Sort of, but not really. Sort of, but not really. Um, I mean, Harry's hugely, hugely important in the comic books. Yeah. And 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 some of this really does happen. They so they they don't know each other at school, okay. but then when Peter gets to um, to college, that's when he meets uh, Mary Jane, and that's where he meets. He doesn't meet Mary Jane at college. 
Uh, Mary Jane is Harry's girlfriend and he meets Harry Osborn and they do eventually become roommates when they're going to college together. It, but because Pete has so many secrets at college, his Aunt May is sick in hospital to, for for quite a bit at the start. And on top of that, he's got his Spider-Man role, so he can't commit to any plans. Everyone at college thinks of him as doing this really aloof snob that he'll never socialize, yeah. he'll never party, you know, and, and that's kind of a big that kind of in the in the sixties that is kind of a big deal. There's a, there's a pull between counterculture teenagers who want to party and and be young people and goody goody follow our parents and no we finish school and we go home. So <laughs> that's what Peter is seen as, um, and so he doesn't get he doesn't he doesn't make any friends to begin with. Um, but but then him and Harry do become very close friends. And kind of around that time, just before um, Harry and Pete become good friends, or around the time they do, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin have this massive battle. And they both discover each other's real identities. Wow. Spide- Spidey finds out that it's Norman Osborn. Green Goblin finds out it's Peter Parker. Which is earth-shattering. Not been done before in comic books, superheroes, for the villain to find out that identity not been touched. And but in the fight, Green Goblin receives this. Well, Norman Osborn receives this huge electrical shock, and it kind of fries his brain, and he gets amnesia, and he comes out comes around with no memory of being the Green Goblin. Oh, <laughs> what? And so Pete makes a snap decision in the moment. Mm. He takes the costume, he burns it. And he carries Osborne away and he tries to hide all of that from Norman so that Norman can be normal and Harry can have a normal life. Yeah. But from that point on, his entire friendship with Harry Osborne takes place on a knife edge. Because Peter is paranoid that any day now, Norman Osborne is going to regain his memories remember who he really is, expose Peter, or kill him. So it is so tense. Whenever they the supporting cast together with these family meals or the college kind of having a thing for parents, whenever he sees Harry and his dad, it's like, is this the day? Oh, is this the moment? Yeah. Is this when everything like falls off a cliff for me? And and things get really bad for Harry with his because his, his dad starts to lose it again. And this is very tough on Harry, and he develops um, a pill addiction, uh, drug addiction, and takes an overdose. Oh, that's Now, yeah, 1970s. Wow. This story was absolutely forbidden by our old friends at the Comic Code Authority. Yep, as I expected. Because it it depicted drug abuse. Yep. Despite the fact the story is showing negative impact of drug abuse, and despite the fact that Marvel Comics had been asked by Nixon's Department on uh, Health, Education and Welfare to do a story like this, with a message like this, to make something, to put a message like this into one of their very popular comic books. They were asked, essentially, by a government department to do it. The CCA refused to make an obsession for the story. And so, for the first Mm. time ever, a Marvel comic book was published and sold without Comic Book Code Authority approval. Is that possible? And this... Well, yes, because they remember they do not regulate the production. The, the CCA um, 
have immense sway with distributors, with the purchasers, with ah, the newsstands. Okay. So when they were formed in the 50s, it was never that they could stop you from publishing mm. because of America's quite gung-ho on you know monopolies and, 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 and business rights. But they would pressurise newsstands and shops to not buy your book. That makes sense. This didn't. I, I don't exactly know all the fallout from in terms of sales, but I do know you know and who did and didn't accept it and sell it. By by this point in the seventies, it, it was perhaps a distant memory to a lot of people who ran a shop. The what? Something from the fifties to do with vampires? I don't think I care anymore. I need to sell <laughs> Spider Man comics, please. He's on the telly. He's got yeah. a cartoon. I yeah. imagine it's fine, you know. But I don't know that for definite. I I am afraid I don't have that that information, but. It did lead to a huge overhaul of the CCA rules and restrictions and a massive change. They had to then face reality that sometimes you can write a story about drugs and it can be a positive. <laughs> um, I think uh, we can carry, we can cover more Harry Osborne if we when we get around to doing Spider Man two and three. I, I was about because to say his role yeah. does change. Yeah, he. Uh, but he, suffice he, to say, yeah, that he he. He does go on to become the Green Goblin, which I've always felt was a huge mistake. Um, he was dead for for a very long time, and then they brought him back, and they brought him back in the right way. They brought him back as a key part of Pete's supporting cast, not as another Green Goblin character, which is just a huge misstep for that for that character. I think. Yeah, you cause you you need to have that dynamic on his side. So anyway, he, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, he's, 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 he's Pete's best friend. Yeah. He, you just start to tarnish... You can't start to tarnish every character and make everyone a super-powered individual. Like in the Blade episode when they brought back Blade's dad and then it turned out Blade's dad was a super-powered yeah. person as well. There's got to be some normality. Otherwise, the interesting characters are no longer interesting because they're the same as everyone else. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about peaks and troughs. So, the movie continues... Peter struggles to hold down a job. Peter sees Jameson's advert- advertisement for good spo- photos of Spider-Man and, webbing his camera in convenient places, gets excellent photos of his own heroic actions. Although Jameson doesn't pay well, he agrees to buy more of Peter's photos. So, I think we know from the cartoons and letter movies that, you know, Peter always seems to be a photographer for the Daily Bugle, but what, what kind of jobs does he have in the comic books? I mean, he must have at least tried some other careers. Yeah, yeah, he really has. The photographer job is 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 brilliant. It, um, kind of like how the the Clark Kent being a, being a reporter kind of works, <laughs> yeah. but even more so, really, for Peter, I think, um, because it it does allow him to kind of make a little bit of money from his wild antics. Um, and the Daily Bugle, I think, more than the Daily Planet, is such an awesome addition to the stories. It's a real rich bed of characters for the Marvel for the whole Marvel universe. Um, you know, love interests and friends and mentors and villains come through there. It's 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 fantastic. Um, during Pete's college years and beyond, he's a research assistant. That's how he meets uh, Doctor Kirk Connors, Ooh. who of course will lose an arm and become the Lizard. He spent time uh, a lot more recently teaching science at his old high school. He actually goes back to the school where he was bullied so much and is now a teacher. During Dan Slot's epic 10-year run on Amazing Spider-Man. Pete becomes 
a very well-funded scientist at a place called Horizon Labs. Spends his time uh, creating new inventions for profit for the company and also designing gadgets for, for his life as Spider-Man. That's, that's, a really, that's another great place. It's a great workplace full of a great new supporting cast. New villains can come from it. New love interests can come from it. You know, it's, it's a really, Horizon Labs is a great error. Towards the end of that Dan Slot run, Pete finds himself sort of accidentally running his own multinational company that's basically like Stark Industries. And he becomes, Spider-Man becomes like a new Iron Man. Um, he, he becomes very international, globe-trotting superhero. Oh, yeah. um, with loads more gadgets and loads more, a high-tech costume and tons of kind of stuff that you don't think of as being traditional Spider-Man fare. Rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way. But of course, Dan Slott knows what he's doing, that writer. It all goes horribly wrong <laughs> towards the end of the run. The company collapses. Peter's back to having no money and being more hard done by than ever before because that's, that's how you do Spider-Man. You take him up, you take him down again. Um, and he, he became science editor at the Daily Bugle the last time I was checking in on things. So he's not back at the Bugle as a photographer. He's back there heading up with his experience running a science company and stuff. He's back there heading up their science division and looking into new scientific endeavours and making sure the reporters know what they're talking about when it comes to science. Which is a really smart move to to parlay a familiar surrounding but with his you know his science background, which is kind of good. That's really good. That's really involved his career. I mean, he 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 he's he's got a comfortable career as a as a science teacher basically, and and, and a scientist as an advisor and whatnot. Like if the to fall back on sort of yeah yeah, yeah. I like that 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 makes him relatable to me. Makes <laughs> him very relatable. So anyway, uh, pressing play. Uh, meanwhile, despite the destruction of their prototype, Quest buys out Oscorp from under Norman Osborne's nose. Furious at the board of directors for betraying him, Osborne starts to hear voices as he slips further into madness. As the Green Goblin, he attacks Oscorp's Unity Day street fair and murders the board of directors. Now, I, 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 I wish I, I should have said this before, but I'm going to say it now. Defoe was a great choice for a villain. The man is naturally villainous. <laughs> yeah, that's why Speed 2 is better than Speed. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to put it out there. I've said it. It's done. Walk away. <laughs> I haven't seen Speed 2, but I, I don't know if I want to. It's about a boat that can't stop going fast in the middle of the ocean. <gasps> Think of all the things it could hit <laughs> out there on the open sea. Uh, he goes, I got Brilliant. The, I got the idea from a film about a bus that had to speed around a city, keeping it speed over 50. And if its speed dropped, it would explode. I think it was called the bus that couldn't slow down. I'm very pleased we've only. That's the first. Guys, this is the best. This is the best episode yet. That we've only had one Simpsons reference. We should all be really pleased. The treatment is working. The medicine is taking effect. <laughs> what, that's, that, I'm so pleased for your progress, mate. That's great. That's great to hear. I'm sorry. I had to drop it in there. Anyway. One day at a time. Defoe, Defoe, back to Defoe. Uh, great, great choice of a villain. Also, uh, I think Green Goblin would would have been scarier if Defoe didn't wear the mask. If it was just his face, the mask, the mask's genuinely awful. It's really, really bad. Uh, did you see the? Ad- the- Sorry, yeah, you were saying. No, what were you going to say? Because I, I think we're going to say-, say the same thing. I think we are. Did you see the initial uh, design for the mask? 
It's horrifying. Yeah. They had an animatronic we'll, we'll mask. Up, we'll put it up on the Patreon. Um, it's really scary. Um, but it, it's very in keeping with the character, with, with the comic book, and how the look of it all. Oh, yeah. Um, I would have preferred that. It, it, it they, 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 there is a, a a problem in Hollywood when they spend millions on a name actor with a famous face. They hate to cover it with a mask. They really hate it. Yeah, which is why in every Spider-Man movie, his mask comes off at key moments. Um, yeah, Defoe certainly has a more kind of I don't want to say a monstrous face, but he has a face that is certainly geared towards playing certain characters. You can definitely imagine him as the Joker with the way his 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 mouth kind of naturally yes. bends. Yes, um, definitely. And and yeah, it's a it's a it's a really it's an awful helmet. I, they again, they they refuse. They they insist on making movies for normies. What will the normies <laughs> think if our villain just suddenly starts to wear a deranged costume? They'll think he's deranged. It's fine. No, no, no. It needs to be a military exoskeleton and a flight helmet. Jesus. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. But we only get it for one movie, so I think now's better than ever. Let's talk about Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin. The the, the biggest, baddest Spider-Man villain. Um, I'm personally a huge Doc Ock fan. He's my guy. But there's really no denying that the Goblin is Spidey's top, top nemesis, top villain. Even with a relatively short kind of spell. Well, to be up until the nineties, it was short anyway. It's probably a lot more now. As I mentioned when we talked about Harry, the, the dynamic of finding out your best friend's dad is your worst enemy is awesome. Yeah, that tension between him knowing your secret identity and then having amnesia, or does he? Is it all a trap? That is really brilliant, brilliant storytelling. Um, in the sixties, to begin with. The Green Goblin's identity was a big secret in the in the comics. It was like an ongoing story. Oh, wow. The audience wouldn't be able to work it, you know, trying to work it out. And there were clues. And um, whenever he was pictured without his mask, there would be a different thing covering his face. Or he would only be shown from the neck down. And you'd see him talk. <laughs> yeah. Like, purposefully hiding who he really is. So, to build this idea in the audience of, who can it be? And then Stanley and Steve Ditko have a really big falling out over who the Green Goblin is going to be. Steve Ditko passionately felt that even after all this build-up of hiding his face and making readers wonder who it could be, he felt the Green Goblin's true identity should be an absolute nobody. Someone you've never seen before in the comic. It's a bit of an anti-climax. That's a, that was Stanley's exact point. Ditko strongly believed that in real life a villain is someone you've never met before. Stanley felt this was just cheating the audience. Yeah. Especially after the way the mystery had been depicted and built up. You do not obscure someone's face in that fashion unless you are trying to make them work out who it is and sending a signal. There will be a payoff to this. Mm. This is a mystery we want you along for. You will get a conclusion. Stanley, uh, I mean, in Ditko at the time, is a co-plotter and artist, but Stanley overruled him uh, and insisted it had to be Norman Osborn because of how the clues were lined up. And one issue later, Steve Ditko quits, quits the book, 
and Ooh. never returns. Um, which is a real shame because Ditko holds a lot of responsibility for the character. Not necessarily the green the, the Norman Osborn twist, but to begin with, in Stanley's in the first appearance, Stanley's script calls for the discovery in a cave of an actual mythical magical goblin. <laughs> and it was Ditko who said that is not what we're doing with this comic. Yeah. And and he unbeknownst to Lee, like he changed the, he changed all of that when he was drawing the issue and made the character a real human, a real villain with a costume that he was wearing. So yeah, it, it, it's it's an odd departure and quite controversial at the time. Um, Osborne's killed off early seventies and remains dead for all of the seventies, all of the eighties, and most of the nineties. It's the late nineties, mid to late nineties when he he returns to play Spider Man again. That's a big chunk of time because yeah, he's introduced mid sixties. He's there for yeah. about five years ish, bit, bit more seven, and then done. Um, but even when he comes back, Osborne is 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 far too evil to be just a Spider-Man villain. He ends up being the major villain of the Marvel Universe for several years. Um, he replaces Nick Fury as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, God. He outlaws all superheroes that he doesn't control, forms his own team of villainous Dark Avengers, um, featuring characters like Wolverine's son and uh, Ares, the god of war instead of Thor. And at the same time, Osborne forms this dangerous cabal with Loki and Doctor Doom and some others that sees them basically secretly run the world behind the scenes that no one ever discovers. And then he becomes deeply unstable and and ends up ordering the US military to invade Asgard. And that doesn't go very well. I can imagine. So Osborne, man, yeah. And and, and then he's back back to being a Spidey villain for a bit. I was about to say, quite a few people have taken over S.H.I.E.L.D. at some point, haven't they? No, not really. Uh, just, I mean, te- technically, Osborne doesn't take over S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. Uh, it's Nick Fury, and then we we talked about Maria Hill having control. Yeah. Iron Man, briefly. That's all I can think of. Okay. Um, so, at the end of the Secret Invasion, which we'll talk about when we get to Captain Marvel, at the end of Secret Invasion... Norman Osborn goes from being a convicted criminal and murdering lunatic to being covered in patriotic glory for having helped knock back an alien invasion. And uh, they put him... Nick Fury is seen to have failed. S.H.I.E.L.D. is seen to have failed. So the president disbands S.H.I.E.L.D. and has Osborn come up with his own new iteration, which he calls Hammer. Uh, And... Throughout the entire run, people keep asking, what does Hammer stand for? And Osborne keeps saying, yeah, I need to get someone to work that out. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that. A big villain. A big villain is Normie. A huge villain. So, things are hotting up now in the film. Goblin's attack also endangers Mary Jane. Spider-Man fights off the Goblin and rescues her when she nearly falls to her death. Mary Jane finds herself falling in love with Spider-Man, a feeling only reinforced when he saves her from some rapists a few days later during a rainy night. This time, she thanks him with a deep kiss. She doesn't know he is really Peter. That was like MTV's Kiss of the Year. 
that was. It, it was. Everybody went mad for that, didn't they? Yeah, they, they played it constantly, didn't they? All over they, that, that clip were like that clip was a huge, I don't know, cultural touchstone. And the upside, the upside down kiss. Um, I think more it was then parodied, wasn't it? Like it was all over SNL and their sketches, yeah. and every like comedy movie that came out did an upside down kiss, and yeah. Apparently, he got water up his nose doing that. I read did, yeah. yeah, he got kept getting water up his nose, which just kind of, that's all I can think looked, of. It, it looked very cold as well, Will. I know, I know, it's that too. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> as we're talking about her, could you tell us about Mary Jane? Uh, how big a figure of, of, is she in the comments? Because you've hinted that she's quite. There's more to her than they've put in this film. This is not Mary... Whatever we're watching in this movie is not Mary Jane. Um, so, in the 60s, MJ is a running joke. Oh. Aunt May is repeatedly trying to set Peter up with her best friend's niece. And every description given of the character leads you to believe that she's, like, a loser. Mm. Like, uh, a boring stay-at-home kind of church woman who needs an old lady to set up a dates for her. And Peter never met her, but avoids meeting her like the play because he assumes she's a really boring girl and she's probably quite plain and homely. And she's like, "No, thank you. I'm good. I got my own. I can make my own dates." Yeah. And then every time she's drawn on on the on the on the page, a little bit like how they obscure the Green Goblin's face, Mary <laughs> Jane is drawn, and there'll be like a lampshade covering her face. Or a curtain or something. And it's this running joke that she's an ugly girl. Or maybe not ugly, but she's very, very plain. Mm. And so they're never going to draw the face to kind of give you that that impression. What we draw will never be as much as what you can imagine. But then Steve Ditko leaves. And John Romita Sr. arrives. A big figure in, in Spider-Man history. John Romita Sr. One of the all-time classic Spider-Man artists. And when he comes aboard... Around around when he's first introduced, that's when they finally decide to introduce Mary Jane in 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 full. Right, and she is this. The joke then goes from it being a running joke to we pull the rug out from under you. She's an absolute knockout redhead, <laughs> um, and on top of that, she's a wild party girl. Oh, she starts off dating Harry Osborn, and repeatedly will tell everyone. She's not into commitment. She's only here to have a good time while she's young. And her name is is Mary Jane. There's a lot of... We know what's being alluded to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that she's there for a lot of the counterculture. A lot of that 60s, swinging 60s scene, baby. Daddy-o. Um, at the time, Gwen Stacy is intended to be Peter's main and enduring love interest. And Gwen Stacy is written in a certain way to be the overly sweet and innocent good girl, the girl next door, loves her father. And then here's Mary Jane, who is wild and fiercely independent um, and repeatedly tells the guys to screw off. And she's just packed full of like spirit and, and charisma and personality. And Gwen Stacy has none of that. This is sacrilege in many parts of the Marvel Universe, but I'm going to say it. Gwen Stacy is dull as a dustbin. <laughs> Utterly boring. Um, the fans went wild for Mary Jane. There were tons of tons of letters were written in about how much they loved her. 
We've never seen a female like this ever before in comic books. And they haven't. Groundbreaking character. And, and they pushed and pushed and pushed in their letters for Pete to get together with MJ. That's what they wanted. Yeah. And so Stan and the gang relent and they go, okay, cool. That's what we'll do then. Um, so this character that we are seeing on screen in this Spider-Man movie is not Mary Jane. She is boring, she is bland, she is simpering, she does not push back, she has no edge to her, she has I, I don't mean I I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to take this is not a criticism of Kirsten Dunst and her performance. This is what is on the page and what we're being shown. Yeah. There's no spirit to this character. What we see in this movie is Gwen Stacy with red hair. Dull and boring, to my mind. Just, yeah, just um, a sweet girl next it, door type. No Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a reflection upon which the male character can talk to and have something bounce back at, you know. Um, in the comics, MJ starts off to talk about that love triangle. MJ starts off as Harry's girl, but there's a clear attraction between her and Pete. But Pete's with Gwen and she's with Harry. Once we have this era changing couple of comic books where, um, Harry has a drug addiction. Norman Osborn dies and Gwen Stacy dies. Um, Pete and MJ are thrown together. And MJ supports Pete through his grief over Gwen. Oof. And they spend a good few years just as friends. And they grow closer every issue. Now that's a real... That's, that's a real step in storytelling. Because they had all the... Um, excuse to throw these together because the fans said they wanted it and then you kill off the girlfriend and it feels like we'll give it a couple of issues and then they'll be together but they genuinely let this relationship blossom they have a adult they have an adult friendship mm. which is how you learn about which is we all know that that's how the greatest relationships begin you learn about someone and you care about someone and MJ's character softens a bit because she has this edge from having an abusive alcoholic father and a, her mother died. And Peter grows to be a bit wilder through his friendship with her. He learns to live in the moment more and enjoy things more. So they, they help each other grow as, as, as people and as mm. characters. And then and then they get together. And it, it, it's a really... She is a great character. It's a shame she's not here. and We're not seeing her in any of the movies, really. I mean, perhaps more with the, with the modern ones because... There is a character with a lot more bite and edge to her in the MCU, yeah. MJ, which is why I'm so pleased to see that character come back in a d- different way. In the comic books, they, they got married in the 80s, um, but that's been wiped from reality by a meddling demon. Um, in, in the noughties, a lot of people in charge at Marvel felt that Peter Parker being married aged him quite a bit. Yeah. And they didn't want him to be seen as middle-aged. And they also felt that, you know, being tied to one love interest kind of limits a lot of storytelling options for them. So they, in a very, very rare Marvel case, they kind of altered reality. Um, And that's difficult. I grew up with Mary Jane as the love interest, so I find it a little difficult that that's just... I don't like when Marvel changed reality. It's not what they're about. But they were up against it because they equally felt, well, what's our other option? We don't want him to be an aged character who is married. If we give him a divorce, I mean, <laughs> we've not helped ourselves, really. So, yeah. Mephisto altered reality. Mephisto. 
it's a long story. <laughs> I, I we won't go into that if it's a long one. Don't worry. Not not right now. Not right now. I think we should go back to the movie. So. The goblin attacks the bugle office to lure Spider-Man into a trap and then offers him a partnership. He warns Spider-Man the city will eventually turn against him and that they should rule it together. A few days later, on Thanksgiving, Goblin stages a fire in an apartment building to get an answer from Spider-Man. Spidey refuses to join with Goblin. The two fight and Goblin cuts Spider-Man across his arm. As Norman... And Peter, the Goblin and Spider-Man are due at the loft for Thanksgiving dinner. They each race pack separately. When Peter arrives to the dinner with fresh blood from the cut on his sleeve, Norman realises that Peter is Spider-Man and hastily leaves. On his way out, he insults Mary Jane and she leaves, hurt that Harry didn't defend her. So, this is a really cool dynamic. I mean, they're having a nice little family dinner. Uh, in, in, in what is essentially a studio, like a little flat, a little shared flat. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and and knowing the other person is your enemy. Is there any of that in the comics? I mean, we already have we have that moment of knowing he's going to have his memory come back, maybe at any point, or is it a trap? I mean, that that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, I think it's a reflection of that. It, it's just a little bit of a shame. It's not. It's kind of flipped around here because in this. It's Osborne that knows Peter's identity, mm. not you know. We don't have both of it happening at the same time, but it's it is cool, um, yeah. And 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 it, it, uh, Goblin learns Peter's identity way before it became the cool thing for writers to have villains do, and it just felt like the ultimate weapon at the time. It felt like there was no way out for Peter because he's never going to kill anyone. Mm. So Norman Osborne will will always have this over him. And yeah, a lot of nice tent. I think this is a, this is a nod to those really cool tense scenes from the seventies. Yeah, it's incredibly tense. I hate when that happens in superhero films because it's like, oh <laughs> no, it's going to kick off now. Going from snogging Catwoman and then having to fight her in a ballroom. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a good moment. Anyway, so things are going to get rough now. Things are getting rough now. Uh, Goblin decides to uh, to strike at Spider Man through Mary Jane. He kidnaps her, then sabotages a trolley car along the Roosevelt Bridge. When Spider-Man arrives, Goblin gives him the choice of saving Mary Jane or the trolley car as he drops them both from the bridge. Spider-Man manages to save MJ and the trolley car as pedestrians on the bridge pelt the Green Goblin with debris and delay him from his attempts to kill Spider-Man. Okay, so what we have here, and we were talking about this uh, before, well, before the recording... This is such a literal trolley car problem. It's an ethical. It's an actual ethical uh, scenario, and is that yeah. what they're alluding? This is what they're alluding to here, isn't it? Oh, Raimi's a smart dude. It's got to be. It's, it's, he's got to be because because like no one does that by accident. because he's got a literal. Just just to, just explain like if, if if people haven't seen the Good Place, the trolley car kind of problem. Uh. Okay, the trolley car problem is there is a trolley, basically a tram or a, a light transit rail, depending on which part of the country you're from. <laughs> I used to work... Metrolink. 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 I, I used to work for a ticketing uh, company that used to do that stuff, so I know the different names. Anyway, um, you, you have a... It's, it's heading... Uh, it's out of control. It's heading down a track, but up ahead is a junction, and there's a switch that can change it from one track to the other. However, on one track uh, is... Uh, some a fam I think a family member tied to the track, 
But on the other is five innocent people you've never met before. And the idea is, which is the right uh, thing to do in this situation? Who is yeah. Who deserves to die? Who deserves to live? And it's a very good conundrum, I think. Well, yeah. And, 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 you know, rose to prominence quite recently with The Good Place. And what we're seeing here before... Uh, before all of that is the Green Goblin deciding to teach some ethics by literally grabbing a trolley car <laughs> and grabbing someone you know and saying, well, who's going to die? Yeah, um, yeah. And I, 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 it's wonderful because that that is um, so often a thing that happens with Spider-Man in that the villains, unlike Batman, they're not scared of him. So they do know, oh, you'll go out of your way to save someone. So your option is... I throw someone off a bridge. You save them, and but you'll let me go. That's the only because you can't do both, mm. um, and that's kind of. I mean, Goblin's just messing with him here, isn't he? He's just trying to push him to his absolute limit. It's it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was. It's impressive seeing him do both at once because I was expecting. I was expecting some kind of. Oh, he, he does it, but not quietly as smooth as that. But he he, he did it smooth. He did absolutely. Also, I I, I think it's quite heartwarming that the citizens come to his aid and go, hey, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. This is a very post-9-11 scene uh, that I yeah. thoroughly believe was added, I don't know, around that time. Um, yeah. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. 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 The people nothing, that, wrong, nothing inherently wrong with it other than as a, you know, from... Traditional Spider-Man is not beloved by the people. There we, we go. We get another version of it in Spider-Man Two, don't we? With it, with the, with the, with the subway car and all that. Oh yeah, totally, totally. But yeah, I, I, I can see your point of it. I can actually see your point of view on that. So, uh, where are we? Where are we? So it doesn't look. Um, it doesn't take long for Peter's loved ones to get attacked. I mean, we've got Mary Jane on top of the bridge, and then with the trolley car. I mean, uh, dare I ask, was this done in the comic? Is this a scene well, this is fact? like another another piece of evidence that this Kirsten Dunst is playing Gwen Stacy, not Mary Jane, because in the comic <laughs> books, this is how Gwen Stacy dies. Really, oh. Gob- uh, Green Goblin kidnaps Gwen Stacy, hmm. flies up to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, lures Spider Man out, throws Gwen Stacy off. Spider Man is just about manages to catch her with a web line around her foot, but the shock of being caught that way. By essentially like a bungee line, yeah, means that uh, her neck snaps from from the shock wave. Oh, that's and she even though he's caught her with a web line, mm. she's died, and that that's that's the end of Gwen Stacy. That's dark. Mm, that is, yeah, that is incredibly dark. Wow. So anyway, <laughs> moving away from that, it's not looking good for Spidey. Goblin and Spider-Man fight in an abandoned building, and the Goblin overpowers Spidey, even throwing a pumpkin bomb directly at Spider-Man's face, heavily damaging Spider-Man's mask and wounding him. As the Goblin is about to kill Spidey, he makes the mistake of threatening Mary Jane. Enraged at this, Spider-Man beats Goblin senseless, but stops when the Goblin unmasks to reveal himself to be Norman. Spidey is shocked, and Norman tries to reason with Peter that all of his crimes were from the influence of the Goblin's persona upon him. Ah, oh, I mean, <sighs> Rob, can you tell us, is the Green Goblin a split personality? I mean, he hears voices and things in the movie. Is that is that true to the original text? 
it, the original text. If we go back to the original text, it's 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 kind of rather unclear in the comic books. Um, and I noticed when we when we were researching th- this episode, a lot of the online synopsis for the movie refer to things that that just aren't really there in the film. Like they'll say, but then the Green Goblin personality takes over and forces Norman Osborn to. And I'm like, mm. I don't, I don't get that read from watching the movie. No, that feels like you're reading into it more. I, I read it as he's using the split personality as a sort of way of going. It wasn't me. It was the one-armed man. I, I exact, I hundred percent agree with you yeah. that I feel it's a sniveling, conniving trick, a toadying um, personality. In, in the comic books, you know, Norman gets amnesia, mm. forgets he's the Green Goblin. These memories resurface. Um, and he experiences like blackouts and wild rage, and he he does hear voices, but it, it's also, it's unclear is he hearing voices like a, a, a split personality mental illness thing, or is that just him remembering things that he's done as ah. memories resurface? Yeah, and then he fully remembers who he is, and that's no longer an issue anymore. When he comes back from the dead, there's no real split personality involved. Yet then years later, when when Norman's left the Green Goblin identity behind and he's running the country and he's plotting to destroy Asgard. He does hear voices and he is beset with images of goblin faces. And in some comics, this is left there. And it's kind of like seen as, oh, that must be, you know, the goblin personality. In Kieran Gillen, uh, born, born and raised in my hometown, Kieran Gillen... Uh, in his wonderful uh, Thor series and Journey into Mystery, we see Loki is actually the one <laughs> invisible, stood next to Osborn in a room, casting illusions of voices <laughs> and faces to make him attack Asgard and nudge him back towards being utterly mad. Yes. Um, now, I don't know if the rest of the Marvel line of comic books knew that Kieran was doing that, <laughs> because it seems to be taken from a lot of comics as... He has a split personality. But if you're reading Thor and Journey into Mystery, is no, it's Loki. <laughs> Just messing with him. I so like, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's unclear. Unclear, okay. So back to the, new, the, the movie. Uh, as Norman begs Peter for forgiveness, he remote controls the Goblin's glider to approach Spidey from behind with deadly blades attached. Goblin tries to use his jet glider to kill Spider-Man, but Spidey leaps out of the way just in time. Norman is impaled and killed. As he dies, Norman asks Peter not to tell Harry about the Green Goblin. Spider-Man takes Norman's body back to his penthouse apartment. Harry sees them and blames Spider-Man for Norman's death. At Norman's funeral, Harry vows revenge against Spider-Man and then thanks Peter for being such a great friend. So it seems odd to have Spider-Man's biggest enemy killed off so early here. I mean... Yeah, this is kind of reflecting on from the comics as we discussed, wasn't it? Because he, he had a, such a long period of not being active. Yeah, this is almost exactly how he dies in the comic books. Wow. Um, the 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 story that the night Gwen Stacy died, he murders Gwen Green Goblin murders Gwen Stacy. Spider Man beats the living crap out of him, comes very close to killing him, mm. but relents at the last minute. And and as Spider-Man is then kind of overwrought with grief and shock at how violent he's just been, Osborn tries to use the Goblin Glider to stab him in the back and then 
exactly as you see here, Spidey moves out the way and, and, and Osborne kills himself. This is a pivotal moment in comic book history across the board. The darkness and tragedy of this storyline, the death of a superhero's girlfriend was unthinkable at that stage in the 70s. Oh, totally. As was the drug abuse they just depicted, as was the very violent death of a supervillain. Yeah. Although it was at his own hand, it's still, you know, impaling himself. This story, 1973, the night Gwen Stacy died, is seen as the moment. It's the end of the more innocent Silver Age of comic books that began back in the 50s. Um, Gwen and Norman's deaths ushered in the start of what comic book historians refer to as the Bronze Age of comic books, which is kind of perpetuated, kind of marked by darker stories, Mm. darker characters, and more socially relevant kind of storytelling. So it's a really key, uh, key moment in the comics. That's the kind of comics I like reading. The ones with more socially relevant storytelling and slightly dark moments. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I'm I'm very surprised that that was the same in the original comics because that was gruesome. So. Yeah. yeah. I I find it jarring in the movie. I mean, I'm very well aware of seeing it in the comic books for so many years. But somehow it did feel quite jarring to see it. Um, Full colour, you know, in in a big movie somehow, you know. I don't know. I, I I saw it as a Sam Raimi film, and I, and I thought, well, he's turned a load of people into skeletons with a bomb. I mean, being impaled's not that much of a job. Yeah, but he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't going to do that in this film, was he? You know, yeah. This is a kids. This is a toy commercial, a kids movie. <laughs> oh yeah, true. A very yeah. very good one, but <laughs> it's a it's a it is a dark. I mean, I know you don't see yeah, it. Yeah. You, you see a, You get a close up on his face, don't you? Yeah, that, but it's it's painful. It's dark. Dark. So. Wrapping up things now. Peter goes to visit Uncle Ben's grave. Mary Jane finds him there and confesses her love for him. She kisses him tenderly, passionately. Peter wants to tell her the truth, but can't. Instead, he tells her he can never be more than her friend. Mary Jane has an inkling that she might have kissed him before, but Peter walks away, knowing that Spider-Man is both his blessing and his curse. Wow! What what big, a isn't it? Big. yeah! What a big move to do. Strong strong decision. Yeah, and that's an ongoing one. We see that I think later on in in um, it's kind of echoed in the one of the Garfield Spider Man movies. Yeah, uh, with one another Spider Man tragedy. So that I mean that that was a hell of a uh, I mean it, that's it's a great film, isn't it? Just a oh. what t- talk us through it, Will? What what are your Final thoughts then on this movie. I think this movie still stands up. Uh, I, I know it, 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 there's, there's that point in the MCU where the writing gets better and it gets funnier, and you think, yes, this is peak MCU. But to have this years before the uh, MCU, the 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 dialogue surprisingly good. The okay, CGI looks a bit dated in places, but as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most iconic superhero films of all time. Uh, it's ent- yeah. still entertaining. Uh, still fun to watch, still marvellous, some great moments. I, I I have almost nothing bad to say about this film. I can't think of a bad it thing hel- to say. It holds up a hell of a lot better than X-Men that we watched in the last episode. Definitely. And indeed Blade. Yeah, way better. And 
to your point from the top of the top of the show, you go to the box, you walk away from the box office making eight times your budget. This is kicking the door down, mm. and it's showing that to, to, from my perspective, Blade was sold really on being um, a vampire movie at the height of vampire popularity. Mm. No one was going to see. A, a you know a small comic book character. It was sold on being a Wesley Snipes action movie and featuring vampires. X Men perhaps did show what a comic book property could do, but also at the same time, it felt very much like a science fiction film to me. Yeah. Like there were a lot of of outlandish sci fi movies around that point, and that could have easily nestled in with those. This is. A, a superhero that the world knows. I, the world does not know X Men. I'm sorry. The the 90s cartoon is, is is was big for a certain generation, but first of all, they weren't wearing costumes. They were wearing biker leather. <laughs> you know, it, it was a muted dark. It was like a sci-fi. You know, dark colors. It was all sci-fi. This is this is taking a property the world knows and maybe might, might have sniggered at as a cheesy cartoon character or a toy that your kids played with. It's taking that and it is putting it front and center with a bold costume with the proper name and it is there's no there's no two ways about it. He's got a secret identity. He fights a supervillain. He he is a superhero. I think this is perhaps the first superhero film. And to have done what it did at the box office, I think this sets the table for the MCU. Oh totally. Totally. What then, Will, has been your favourite piece of Marvel trivia from this delve into uh, Spider-Man? It's been more serious in terms of the Marvel trivia, I think. There's, it's been more serious yeah. from drug abuse. Uh, uh, maybe there's some funny moments with the uh, Jameson's uh, petty pranks, but I have to say... <laughs> Jameson being Stanley. I, 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 like, I like that. I like that. I do like... But I have to say, uh, I am not going to shy away from the ticking time bomb that was uh, Norman Osborn's memory. I think yeah. that is such a great narrative, uh, you know, narrative device. It's it can't. It, at first, you think, "Oh, this is just a cheap trick, so they can just uh, reset things a bit." But no, that's that's a ticking time bomb right there. Yeah, you do have this. You do have this kind of built-in thing of oh, amnesia, that cheap soap opera thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bumped my head and I don't remember that that thing from that was in every episode of Flintstones. Oh, Fred bumps his head and wakes up and thinks he's a mafia boss or something. <laughs> but it, it's used like you. Yeah, it really is used in a brilliant way to to wrap up tension um, throughout the the interpersonal soap opera that's going on in their lives. Brilliant. Well. I think that was quite the detour, mate. What do you reckon? I, I, I ruddy loved it. We did Blade, we did X-Men, we did Spider-Man. I think those are the big, big movies that that changed the way Hollywood and the general public viewed comic books and Marvel heroes. And I think that sets us up for a return to the MCU, which is what we'll do in the next episode. We will return... And kick off phase two of the journey as we take a look at Iron Man 3. Please make sure that you uh, take the time to watch along at home. You've got the wonderful Disney Plus app now with all the Marvel movies consolidated on there. Where you can dig out the DVD um, and check out Iron Man 3 and you can join us 
as we return to the MCU after our little three-episode detour. Don't forget that you can support this podcast by heading to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. You can donate £3 to uh, help keep the lights on around here, help us keep the storage space and the hosting and all that going on. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel, and you can get access to some wonderful bonus content, and you can check out the blogs about all the episodes, including this one that will be up there with lots more trivia, history, info, and images. And it just reminds me to thank my co-host, Mr. Will Preston. Thank you. For his deaf job taking us through that movie. <laughs> and uh, you've got to uh, sit down immediately and start watching Iron Man 3. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Well, not as much as this, <laughs> but it'll be nice to revisit it. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Marvel vs. Marvel. Thanks for listening to Marvel vs. Marvel. Don't forget to rate us and subscribe. And hey, why not recommend us to a friend that loves Marvel movies or comic books? You can watch along with Iron Man 3 to get ready for the next episode on the journey.